scary skeletons and shivers down your spine. Shrieking skulls will shock your soul and seal your doom tonight. Spooky, scary skeletons speak with such a screech. You'll shake and shudder in surprise when you hear these zombies shriek. What's so sorry, skeletons? You're so misunderstood. You I want lines. Right now. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm, a, I'm a chocolate person. You know, at, at Sheets, they do this thing that I used to get from a restaurant that I don't remember when I was a kid. I think it was Ground Round. If anyone remembers. Oh my god. If anyone I remember remembers ground the Ground Round. round. They did a, a dessert called Dirt. Okay. It's gummy worms in pudding with like an Oreo cookie yep, on like a, top. Like a crumbling. And then it does different layers of different types of chocolate cream. Sheets actually sells those. Gotta get one then. <laughs> we gotta go to Sheets <laughs> then. This is Pineapple Express. The actual strain condensed into an oil. So if you ever wanted to taste the sweetness of Pineapple Express, what a beautiful beautiful little device it's it, it it is a different taste than usual weed um it smells like pepper pepper that's what i'm just smelling right now i'm smelling i also have this pepper. because i recently quit smoking cigarettes oh okay i'm not going to congratulate you because i think you're a pussy but yeah you definitely look cooler smoking cigarettes kids you look and are cooler. <laughs> that's, that's true. That's true. Dying is cool. It's it's all the rage nowadays. Uh, <laughs> we gotta talk about a couple things. All right, um, I know. I'm I'm not. I just want to let everyone know, even though a lot of people think it. I'm I'm not an incel. Mm-hmm. I recently discovered mm-hmm. what an incel is, and I was referred to as one. And I just want to let everyone know I'm not. And incel. Uh, explain that. I'm, well, first of all, I'm, the last thing, the last thing I am is a misogynist. In fact, I put everyone down. Your water's down there? Yeah, mine's down here. Okay. I I put everyone down of every creed, of every race, of every gender. Okay. I I put everyone down. Including yourself. Quite equally, including myself. Um, an incel is, it's part of, like, Reddit culture, um, it's it's a it's a it's a shortened version of involuntarily celibate. An individual, usually a male, a male who is um, incredibly sexist and mis- misogynist in how he regards women and puts them down. You know, slut shames them and uh, is like will. Uh, you know, commit crimes like rape and, and in order to get quote-unquote laid. That's what an incel is. I was referred to as one. In what situation? Um, while playing an online game. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, you deserve it. <laughs> Moving forward. Uh, I won't say which one. <laughs> you can say which one. Um, it was, I think it was Fortnite or Smite. <laughs> Good. Good. Because everyone on... Either of those games. It's just a... I think it was Smite. Bunch of fags. <laughs> in the nicest <laughs> way possible. <laughs> oh, I was uh, I was hanging out with uh, Punxsutawney Trill uh, last week. And uh, and he uh, he went on a diatribe for a little bit. And this, this was outside of the podcast, not... 
I didn't let him include it in the podcast, but at one point he went on a diatribe saying, I just wish I could bring the word fag back. <laughs> he was like, I'm, I wish when the world was less liberal and more okay with in, in, in politically correct humor. And he was like, I just missed the game fag. I just missed the name fag. I said game, didn't I? Um, I guess <laughs> it is a game. Is there the a game? At the end of the day. No, it being one oh, <laughs> is yeah. a bit of a game yeah. in itself. Anyway, we're here. This is lots of pasta. This is, uh, this, this is going to be 86. Ooh, okay. It's a while from now. Sure. When I'm listening to this, I'm going to be like, that's funny. Because now it has been a while. So, we are reading oh, something. Oh, you gotta introduce me by name. Yeah, that's right. Tenron. <laughs> we're gonna skip. O-trin. We're gonna skip the introductions. Just strictly use pronouns. Figure it out along Dude, the way. You, hey, that's actually yeah. I like that. Um, so, Tenron Otrin and I are here back again so soon. Um, I believe you were two weeks ago. Late. Yeah, late, uh, was it early 80s or was it late 70s? It was 81. Oh. So it would have been, uh, five weeks ago. Are you sure? I mean, calendar-wise, you and I hung out, what, two weeks ago? Yeah. But I'm talking recording-wise. Look at you getting another one right in there. That's a lot. I'm on your veteran this status. Is your, this is your yeah, this is your sixth episode. I mean, not to fool anybody. I don't have a life. <laughs> you were also the 16th guest on my show out of 22, which is what I found out last night. Okay. How nuts is that? Look at that list. Well, I'll never move from that position. 16. It's a good number. Healthy number. Oh, I'm Pretty sure I lost my virginity at 16. Brilliant. So. When you should. Yeah, I agree. I was 17. <laughs> it's, it's still, like, any point. Yeah, but it's, it's older. I think I think anyone who loses it when they're, like, 14, like, freshman in high school, you have risk of doing something very stupid. By the point you're 16, you're old enough to understand what it is you're doing, and it's not just mashing your bodies together. Exactly. Um, I messily, I had it in fact. full intent to reproduce, so... Abs- absolutely. We were biologically composed to do such a thing. And speaking of biologically composed to reproduce in certain ways, we just watched The Thing. Jesus. Good lord. I mean, Kurt Russell again delivers in that standing performance. <laughs> <laughs> I just like how you're you're talking like you could remember Kurt Russell movies. Um, yeah, name, Gar- Guardians name, of the Galaxy 2. You're a fuckhead. <laughs> <laughs> you're a fucking asshole. Um, Miracle on Ice. Oh my god. <laughs> the worst examples um, I can think of. What else? I got to pull something else out of my ass. Mm-hmm. Um the uh i'm 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 thinking it isn't he part of a space movie i think so oh my god is it guardians of the galaxy volume no 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 he's um shoot man he's like the the head of a space program and they oh shoot stargate no cuz he is he is in that he's in the first stargate movie no that's not what i mean um, 
damn, I'm just gonna Google it. You're Kurt, the worst. This is um just a hot minute about Kurt Russell. I mean, come on. He's just like a different version Naming of... a bunch off the top of my head. Uh, Bone Tahamahawk is a fantastic horror film. It's a western uh, that they approach like um, Native Americans are savages and they act as such in this film. And it is terrifying and it's a fantastic film. Bone Tomahawk from the director of Brawl in Cell Block 99, which is another fantastic movie starring uh, the chilling Vince Vaughn in a not funny role. He's fantastic when he's being serious. Um, the other Kurt Russell flicks I can think of is Big Sky Tru- High. Big Trouble Little China. God damn it, a Disney flick? Was it? Big Trouble Little China and Escape from New York, Escape from LA. Um, but we watched The Thing. And The Thing. I have talked about on this show so many times. I know I could, um, I think my first episode with Scotch McGee, which has to be, um, 50 something, I think, uh, 53, I think we, uh, we talk about the thing a bunch. Um, and then we talk about it in his next episode, which I think is 60, uh, 68, uh, 67. Anyway, uh, Dogscape, 38, that entire story is basically what would have happened to planet Earth if they found the dog in the ice and, you know, Kurt Russell's team hadn't done what they did throughout that movie. More importantly, Kurt Russell hadn't done what he did in that movie. Um, so I had to, I, I, I'm glad we kind of took a break after watching that because now I could just talk to you about it and have it here on the recording. Uh, someone who's never seen it before. Um, I was scared. You were scared. I was, te- I was terrified. I was, I, I, either I was freezing my ass off down here. Or... It did kind of put us in the film, didn't it? Because oh it's cold and dark. That's down here. that's very true. I mean, I was I was under huddled under a blanket, and body shaken uncontrollably because I you know, well, I was scared. And we were high. And we were high, and mm-hmm. so I'm like over there, all Parkinson's right now. Mm-hmm. And there was one part I jumped. It was when he tested the blood, and it was real quick reaction. Yeah, the blood when he tests Parker. Yep. And the little hand comes up right out of the dish. Yes. Right. That freaked me out. I jumped right out of my skin. Yeah, Parker's a good a good surprise. The weakest of all of the things in the movie, uh, appearance wise. But another fun fact that I didn't say. I I started toning out fun facts because I didn't want to annoy you. I just wanted you to (laughs) absorb the narrative. But another fun fact is that that's one of the first times in any movie ever that they fully light a special effects stuntman on fire. Oh my god. Wow. It was was 80... In a movie, you know, Evil Knievel had done it in the 70s or 60s at some point, but it was the first time in a movie that they... That they like, it was in the plot. For, oh, yeah, the special effects were excellent. Yeah, I think it's Baker. I want to say it's Rick Baker. Um, I should know this by now. Any any relation or chance of uh, uh, Lucasfilm's Industrial Light and Magic? Nothing to do with that. Nope. Rick has been uh, his own 
It is Rick Baker. It's Rick Baker and Rob Botton. Rob Botton was the one I was thinking of. But he learned from Rick Baker, so that's... No, Botton was a... Botton worked for... Yeah, Botton worked for Baker. Yeah, so I'm not surprised. Um, so Rob Botton did the special effects, and Baker... And I, and I think Baker and Botton are the ones who did um, American Werewolf in London. So... If you saw that movie, you know that the special effects won multiple awards. For the time, you know, 80s. They're one of the first movies to do, like, the werewolf transformation, and it just look and sound absolutely painful. And it and it was the guys who did the thing, did the special effects. Oh, wow. So it looked real nutty. It's well regarded freaky. as some... Yeah. Just like, just like the thing. How would, so, you, how would you explain... The entity of this alien. Well, it's biological. It's parasitic. Um, it is. It kind of. So it's here's the thing. Sentience. We haven't watched the prequel yet, but the prequel got a lot of shit because they did two things wrong. They threw out practical effects and used CGI the entire movie. Oh wow. They had a practical uh, practical effects scene. Some even got filmed, um, and they just chose not to use it in the movie. And the people who did the practical effects in two thousand eleven for the thing was way to way to digital and their on hands department. So the people who essentially did Lord of the Rings. Oh okay. Like fucking a. This movie had a budget. The thing about Botten in the eighties. Is Carpenter made that money, made that movie off of nothing. That's why it's the same set for the Norwegian camp, and they just burned it down at the end of the first, at the end of the movie. So like, they just went back and filmed scenes, and you know, yeah, at the huh. destroyed camp and re-entered them. Um, Botten used microwaved plastic bubble gum, and um, I think it was like silly putty to get the desired effect. Of, like, skin stretching and falling off and, and veins wow. and stuff. Because they didn't have a budget. And, and he just needed to come up with shit. And he learned all these little tricks. That's like student films. From shit. Baker. Absolutely. So, Carpenter, I think, had only made Halloween at this point. And I think that was 79. You know? This, this had to have been 84, 85. Um, and Halloween did okay. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure it did good. Um, but Carpenter was so pissed by how many people didn't like, uh, the thing. And like I said before, you know, it grew to be one of my favorite movies of all time and one of the most regarded sci-fi horrors of all time. Yeah. Okay, so... Next question I gotta ask when we're talking about this movie, specifically with a newbie, what did you think of the ending? I didn't trust McCready. You didn't trust McCready, which I thought was very funny, because he has proven himself to be no, that's true. human so many times. It is true. Um, most people in that final scene questioned Childs. He was last seen running out of the base before the power went off. The power is in the basement of the main base. It wasn't where they were at. They were up at McCready's shack, and they turned around, and Childs went running out into the blizzard. 
So the question you have to ask yourself at the end is, here are the two of them, the sole survivors. Childs. Is Childs a thing? Is it a changeling? Is it an alien? God, I mean... I, I felt... Okay, so I didn't, I didn't really uh, like regard this because I was super high and I thought maybe I, I just was like floored by my first viewing. Mm-hmm. But I had a sense towards the end of I was missing something. Like there is another separate entity that is this organism, but it's a separate body, you could mm. say. And we lost track of it and we're being misled thinking that that one is this one currently that had taken over um, Oh, absolutely. Blair. Absolutely. So there, yeah, I thought we lost track of something else. But Blair then gets everyone else at the end of the movie except yeah. for McCready. McCready. Yeah, so th- that And I'm speaking, dies. I'm saying, I'm saying also Childs. You think that he would have split oh, Childs I don't, off of him? I don't think I know. I've watched this movie enough times. Childs was split off of him. Yeah. You know. Absolutely. Replicated and sent on his way. Exactly like Parker. Not a, um, earlier, um... He was infected in that moment and then ran out into the blizzard. What moment was he infected? They do a, um... Right before McCready, Nulls, and Gary go up to McCready's cabin. We do a long single shot retreating through a hallway. It pans over and we see Childs guarding a window and a door looking outside, looking up at McCready's shack because they're getting the, because the they're light. getting ready and the light is on. So Childs is making sure no one's going because he's going to stay and watch the base. The three of them are getting souped up to go out into the blizzard. Okay, okay, I remember the that. The next shot we have... After they get up to the shack, they get up to the shack and they're looking around and they find something, but the movie cuts away for a moment. And the next shot we get is the same backwards one, one piece slows and they see child's run. But what you see first, the first thing it does is pan all the way back and then look at the basement. And then when it looks back at the door, it is wide open and Childs is fucking gone. Now, what did he say at the end? When he was asked by McCready, where were you? He says he saw Blair out in the blizzard entering a different part of the facility farther away. That's plausible. Just don't have the alibi. Plausible. Okay, well... So the eagle-eyed viewer, who or, or the seasoned viewer, I should say, notices several several problems here. I gotta watch it again at some point. True. Um, but give it a couple years and then come back and see what you can learn. Couple because years? I'll give that bitch three months <laughs> and I'll watch it again. I'm so good. So... They pan to the basement because the finale takes place in the basement. That's where Blair turns out to be the entire time. Yeah. He had tunneled into the ground 
and came out in the basement where the power supply is. He was building a ship in the basement using scraps. He was as, taking... As Blair or as the alien? No, there was definitely an alien entity moving around and making this stuff, but it was Blair and Blair's knowledge and the alien at working together that makes Blair kind of, you know, the mastermind, you know, mega boss that he is. And I imagine Childs hears the shit going on downstairs because at this point they're about to break into Blair's shack and find the tunnel with the alien ship. They they know they're coming to Blair's shack. Well, Blair Blair knows that they're coming for him. So what he does is he splits off. He goes off through the basement up and gets Childs while Childs is alone. Mm-hmm. Childs doesn't have time to react, which is why the next shot we see is the open door and Childs is gone. Childs, you know, Childs is gone. Child, you know, Nulls has seen him um, run out into the blizzard. Child's coat throughout the entire movie is navy blue. And the movie does this kind of thing where the movie takes place over the course of, you know... Days. Several days, but everyone kind of wears the same clothes or the same colors because it helps viewers remember all of these characters. Yeah. Because they look and wear individual different things. They all have characteristics, and Childs is most simple because he wears dark colors the entire movie, black shirt, blue coat, and he's black. So, like, easy to remember because he's not the young black kid, he's the other black guy who wears dark clothes. Oh, whatever happened to that kid? Oh, Nulls just gets fucked in the basement. We never even see it. He walks off in a direction, and just like Gary, absorbed. Wow. Immediately, yeah. Arguably the what is the giant snake thing form coming out of the ground at the end. It is that big because it has consumed Gary, Nalls, Blair, Hmm. and um, evidently um, the dog DNA as well. So it it had to have been a, a split off of Parker or... Norris. It's pretty. It reminds me so much of a homunculi. Interesting. Particularly envy or pride hmm. in brotherhood. Oh yeah. And how they absorb. Yeah. yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. I thought about. I thought about the original like mythology homunculi before I thought of. Full metal. Full metal. So I was like really confused. Sorry. No. Uh, no, no. No. Totally fine. You you made that connection earlier, and it and it. It made sense. So when we see Childs at the end of the movie, there there are two things that help. Okay. What's your favorite? If you if you remember the beginning of the movie, McCready is playing chess, and the game beats him, and he gives it a drink, and he says "cheating bitch," and he's pissed off because he lost. At the end of the movie, McCready is on the ground drinking. Childs walks up. And McCready hands him a drink. Because it's very obvious that by Childs being there, McCready has lost. Cheating bitch. Fun little metaphor that wraps around from the first scene in the movie to the ending scene in the movie. Because Childs should have blown up with the facility, but 
the creature was too smart and it sent him out into the blizzard away from the blast. Wow. Point number two is Childs is wearing a tan going on white jacket in the final scene. And anyone who has been watching the movie knows that that could have been, I think it's either uh, Norris's, because Norris wears a a tan one. Mm. And when he dies, he's just, you know, wearing his blue sweater on the operating table. Mm. Um, So yeah, you know, you just, you pick up on these things and like, you know that when a thing assimilates it ruins the clothes of the person, so they need to get something else. So this, you know, it explains why at the end um, he has a different jacket, but he has the same flamethrower, you know? He um, he wants to blend in. Yeah. All right. I, I totally understand that. Other people say that the way that the lighting is done in the final scene, you could see McCready's breath, but you can't see breath coming out of Child's. Another people, uh, more people say that. Um, I just gonna go back and watch that last scene. More people say that the bottle McCready is holding, he never actually drinks out of, and that it's a leftover bottle from the Molotov cocktails he was carrying around, bombing the house with. So, it's full of gasoline. It's not full of alcohol, and the reason he holds on to it is so that if anything survived, he'd be able to Molotov it real quick, or at least light it on fire. Um, Because he didn't have his flamethrower anymore and he was out of dynamite because that's how they blew up Blair. Yeah. So there's another rumor that he's holding gasoline in that bottle and that he never actually drinks out of it. He just wants to look convincing in in case anyone's watching. Mm -hmm. Um, So when he hands it to Childs at the very end and Childs just drinks out of it, and McCready smiles, people say that's because the organism that is Childs is drinking gasoline and has no fucking clue. But McCready does. What would drinking gasoline do? A human would go, that's fucking gasoline. Yeah, but like, as far as to harm the creature, what would it... Oh, no, no, no. It's more so to test... Because a human would oh, taste gasoline okay. and probably throw up. And is that when he says cheating bitch? He doesn't say it at the end. He says it in the beginning. I'm saying that the end is a metaphor for the first scene. The I'd have to see it again. That, that just sounds way more complicated and beautiful than I, I originally... The first scene in the movie, other than the chasing of the dog, the first scene of McCready in the movie is him playing chess master, chess wizard... And the computer brings its queen forward and checkmates him immediately. And he pours his whiskey down the CPU and and huffs out, cheating bitch. Oh, that's why he poured that down. Okay. Because he thought he was going to win. You know, he's he's smart. He's calculated. But I'm glad you liked the movie because it's definitely one of my favorites. And uh, anyone listening who likes... The thing, as much as I do, uh, go listen to episode 38. It makes Dogscape all the more fun if you just think about the thing the entire time. You won't be disappointed either. I I honestly think Dogscape was written with the intent of being, you know, what if the thing, what if the Norwegian outpost just lost the dog and there there was no 
movie. Like it, ma- it eventually makes its way back to civilization over time. And it collects every dog and breeds every dog and assimilates every dog slowly under humans' noses for at least a year, I think they count, before all the dogs go missing and something literally consumes planet Earth, well, at least most of it. Like a giant contact lens wow. being, being put on the on the planet, just made of flesh and dog parts. Oh my god. Mm-hmm. Entire cities just morphed, you know, cronenberg to say, to say the least, as Rick and Morty would. It's all Cronenberg, it's all cronenberg up. Yeah, Rick, it's all Cronenberg, at least we're all Cronenberg together. Oh, jeez, Morty. <coughs> I'm Pickle Rick! <laughs> God damn it. So, uh, the only other things I wanted to talk about is that this episode's interesting because we're reading something about, if I remember correctly, biologically accurate zombies. Do you know about biologically accurate zombies? Biologically accurate? Yes. I can't say that I do know. Jeffrey Dahmer did this thing where he drilled into people's heads and he put acid in there so it like effectively killed them but their bodies were still alive and they just kind of went and he would like have sex with them and eat parts of them and shit because Jeffrey Dahmer's you know he was a fucking psycho so that's like one kind of zombie but then what eventually this this story looks like it's gonna be about is there's the African kind of zombie which is the mythology that, you know, since the 1800s, they've been burying people with certain diseases that stasis them, but don't necessarily kill them. So people will literally climb up out of their graves and go back to their homes, but be decaying in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. So the first line says Africa, Guinea, and that immediately makes me think of biologically accurate zombies. It's not an infection or a disease or anything. It's it's literally just uh, a thing that that happened. Oh, uh, okay. You know, um, at least it might be an urban legend. It might be a, it's witch doctor shit. People think, but you know, whatever. Um, but this this story, uh, I think, is going to be about zombies and. I th- now that I think about it, I think we've only done, like, even one story on this podcast about zombies. There's only, like, one I could think of. You would like episode 79, by the way, because that's kind of like an alien that... Assimilates? That assimilates a, a person in a family. Ooh. Yeah, that's a fun one to read. In Star Trek The Next Generation, there's a, I think, an arc of episodes where the, like, Council of the Federation had been assimilated by uh, these parasitic aliens that would, I think, attach itself to the back of the neck. Um, I forget who has to rescue the day. I think it's Picard. But Picard's um, the man. Make it so. Make it so. T. Earl Grey. Hot. <laughs> God, I fucking I love, love Patrick Stewart. And I love dicks. Ha <laughs> ha. I love dicks a lot. 
So, um, <laughs> no, he's a very popular homosexual uh, activist. Yeah. Um, we uh, were reading something today. This is going to be a long one, so I hope you've... I hope you've sat back, and I hope you've enjoyed our going-to-be-well-summarized version of uh, Thing Conversation. I played a little bit of a zombie game, literally called Zombie, Oh, oh before, I, yeah. before um, recording this. So I'm, I'm in the mood for zombie virus outbreak quarantine bullshit. Have you ever seen the movie Quarantine? Yeah, I th- the original think so. Spanish. Oh no, that not one's the, called Wreck. Not the original as in one. recording with a little red light. People become insanely crazy fast. And yeah, quarantine isn't as good as the original really? Spanish films. There are three Spanish films: Wreck One, Two, and Three. Quarantine and the second one, I watched. Did you really? Yeah, they weren't great. I thought they were scary. The special effects in the Spanish one are far scarier. Good lord. Anyway, um, that's fun. We um, remember the airplane in the first quarantine. Mm, I do. Give me a break, dude. That was the... pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty Come good. Come on. Uh, Freaky still, stuff. It's better than the Spanish one. All right. So um, <laughs> uh, watch that. We gotta talk about other other zombie things. You know, like uh, Shaun of the Dead, probably one of the best zombie films ever. I haven't seen uh, that in a long time. Night of the Living Dead. Bill know, Nye is OG. in that. I didn't know that. Is he? Yeah. Oh, Bill Nye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bill yes. Nye. Yeah, he's great. Uh, I, wish could do, I wish I could do an impression up. of him. I could only do the Davy Jones impression of him, which is... Yeah. Uh, which, uh, <laughs> next time, we'll come back to port. <laughs> it's like the best I could do. The way he pops oh, his lips around. Oh, my God. Um, he's brilliant. Oh, he's he's fantastic. He's absolutely fantastic. He voices the dead orbit guy in Destiny. Yes, he does. I knew that. <laughs> it's random. Oh no, but... no 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 no! He voices the speaker in Destiny. The dead orbit guy is Peter Stormare. Thank you. Damn, Lucifer, you're right. Lucifer from Constantine. Yes. And Until Dawn. Damn. The, the, the psychologist in Until Dawn. Oh my god. It's totally okay, but, though, Yeah. Because they're fantastic. Lenny James oh, from yes. Walking Dead voices Shax, the Crucible leader. So Lenny James, who plays Morgan on Walking Dead... Um, does Shax. He does Shax. Good He's Lord. absolutely fantastic. Fantastic actor. Who's Zavala? Uh, Walking, Walking Dead has gone to shit. Zavala uh, is yeah. the deepest black guy from the TV show Fringe. Mm. If you saw Fringe and you know the director, then you know who voices Zavala. I Coral will get you caught up, Guardian. He's got these... He's, he's bald and the deepest black. I think I know. I think I can put a face to the name. Yeah, Lance Reddick. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's exactly what I was picturing. Fantastic. Anyway, so we're reading a, a zombie story. It's gonna be a couple parts, I think. Uh, it's called 21 Day Quarantine, and naturally, with that title, you think 28 Days Later, one of, another one of the best zombie outbreak virus films of all time. Um, that was... The guy who did Train Spotting and Sunshine, and I forget his name. Good director, though. 
does fantastic Wasn't movies. Wasn't he Crane in Batman? The actor? Yep. I'm talking about the director. Um, oh, sorry. The actor, the actor is... Days. Um, I think I'm right, though. The actor is Scarecrow in Batman Begins. Yeah. The actor is the son in Inception. The actor is main guy in 28 Days Later. The actor is... Peaky Blinders. I can't fucking remember his name. Sorry, guy. It's just one of those actors. You never know. He's good, name. though. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I'm bad with names right now. I'm losing it. But, like, we should we should hop into this story real quick. This is going to be uh, about as long as a, as a Whistler's. So, we should hop into it. Yeah. 21-day quarantine. I've just returned from Africa. Guinea, to be specific. I was there interning for the CDC in cooperation with the WHO. If you haven't heard what's going on in West Africa right now, then I'll give you the quick and dirty. There's a massive Ebola virus outbreak. Oh man, we just had Taco Bell. It's alright. It was worth it anyway. I thought as I was eating it, if I died after this meal, it'd be fine. But... It was a good meal. I digress. I worked as a tech, assisting with incredibly ill patients. Most of them didn't make it where I worked. The few that did survive were in bad shape and would probably carry traces of their struggles with them for the remainder of their lives. It wasn't pretty. I want to make a joke about, you know, like AIDS or... HIV? Yeah. You want to make a joke about it? Go ahead. But I, I tell you right now there's consequences and I'll... I'll <laughs> I will my have point, a word. My point was, but I can't think of any. <laughs> so, continue. There are no jokes about AIDS. Because it's not a joking matter. Is that what you're trying to get? No. Oh, you're a pussy. I have a degree in biology <laughs> and microbiology and have been working towards a master's in epidemiology. I plan on eventually getting my doctorate, but that's neither here nor there right now. Sounds like the uh, main character from Annihilation, which I recently saw. Fucking fantastic. It also sounded like Green Eggs and Ham. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it didn't it? One of my professors invited us to apply for a summer internship with the CDC working with the WHO in an attempt to find a vaccine for the Ebola virus outbreak that's been ravaging West Africa. That's a little bit redundant. It's restating the information. I put my resume in the mix and was rewarded with a spot on the trip. There were four of us in total, and we all went to separate hospitals. They weren't really hospitals, it was a series of tents set up to hold the ill until they either got better or died. I know it sounds harsh, but when someone's veins have deteriorated to the point that a nurse can't even get a needle into them without them catastrophically flailing, then the chances are they aren't going to make it. The reason this disease has been spreading so quickly in the area is quite simple. The method the indigenous peoples use to bury their dead. They insist on washing the corpses before they put them in the ground. This puts them in direct contact with bodily fluids contaminated with a virus that has at least an 80% mortality rate and can remain dormant for up to 21 days. Someone could basically be dead on their feet for three weeks before symptoms begin to manifest. Death from internal bleeding comes quickly to those who decide to take mercy on. Others linger for weeks. I've been quarantined for the last three weeks to ensure that I was safe to return home. It was standard procedure. 
Anyone who was leaving the facility that had been in any sort of contact with the patients, even while wearing hazmat suits, had to wait a minimum of three weeks before leaving. No exceptions. One of the other assistants, a local man, was informed that his wife had succumbed to an unrelated illness and that he was required to stay for three more weeks before going to be with his family. It was strictly enforced. We planned our trip accordingly and collected our data and samples in May, having last been in contact with the patients or samples a little over three weeks ago so that we could return at the beginning of July. The doctor I was working with was a somewhat local one who seemed to have delusions of grandeur. <laughs> you know, he's around sometimes. Somewhat local. He's also somewhat he's worldly. A, he's around here. He's global. Kind of just like throw, flails his arms. Somewhat like local. Gestures. Somewhat global. Somewhere in between. So this guy, he had delusions of grandeur, not to mention a death wish. He was originally from Southeast Nigeria, and he didn't act like the rest. Sorry, he didn't act like the rest of the doctors, and seemed to have his own bizarre agenda the entire time I spent with him. The agenda was the way. It was, and I think he found it. He behaved like a normal enough person, but he would frequently disregard the strict safety rules and, on occasion, nearly expose himself to the virus. I watched in horror one afternoon as he removed the helmet to his mask to wipe a bead of sweat from his face. There was no earthly power that could have convinced me to remove my mask in such a situation. If someone sneezed from across the room, the microscopic beads of water could travel at upwards of 30 miles per hour, infecting him before he even had a chance to get his mask back on. We were burning bedsheets to prevent the spread of this horrible virus while he is removing his mask in patients' rooms because he's uncomfortable. It amazed me that he, hasn't taken, he hadn't taken ill yet. I reported him to the WHO rep on site. The WHO rep promptly told me that no one in their right mind would do that, and I received a verbal reprimand, but otherwise nothing happened. He got in trouble for reporting. <laughs> no one would do that. Yeah, I'm, I'm 90, I am 99% sure no one would do that. You lying bitch. If he didn't care that he got infected, that was one thing. But I had no such desire. I took great care to avoid this man outside of the ward. He lived on the other side of the city and kept mostly to himself when at the ward outside of patients' rooms. It wasn't hard. I had to have one interaction with him that I can remember. He was required, as part of our assessment of the working conditions of the healthcare providers in the facility, to give us a cheek swab. I took this swab with the utmost care and made sure to wear a full hazmat suit. I treated him as if he were a patient. I had an excuse all prepared in case he asked. This was my standard procedure. The suit's clean, and I don't like taking risks. But he didn't. He simply smiled and stared at me with eyes that seemed to look right through me. His eyes seemed off, but I couldn't put my finger on it. I never really got a close look at them. I burned the suit like the rest after decontamination. His sample was checked under a video microscope and placed under observation like the rest. Finally, over three weeks ago, my group had our final decontamination. We stayed quarantined in our respective facilities and studied the data, tapes, and recordings. The data was going to make a fine thesis that would probably help me greatly in the pursuit of my doctorate. Each of the four students had to provide a sample as well, and as we were nearing the end of three weeks, 
all had been deemed clean, showing zero signs of infection. Everyone was healthy, which, even with the precautions we'd taken, was a fantastic relief. The healthcare workers, for the most part, had remained unaffected by the virus. Only one of the workers became infected during our stay, and that was a known accidental breach. She'd been unfortunate enough to stick herself through the suit with a contaminated needle. Mercifully, she actually survived her infection and lived to give us a second sample of someone who'd beaten Ebola. We had recorded enough data and videos of the various samples we'd taken to last for months, but we were on a time, a time schedule, so some of, it, some of it waited until we got back home. As we were leaving the facility, I noticed that the WHO rep was a different one than the person who'd verbally told me to basically keep a lid on it. I questioned her, and she informed me that she'd only been assigned this post the very day, or that very day, as the last WHO rep had been killed in a botched robbery a few days prior while in Sierra Leone. I questioned her as to what she knew about the doctor who I'd been working with, and she claimed that no one under the name worked under the facility. As she flipped through the pages, she did remark that a patient under the same name had passed away very, very early on in the outbreak. She described him and showed me a grainy photograph of what appeared to be a man near death lying on a bed. That was him. Well, that was the doctor. I could see it in his eyes, and I figured out why they looked odd. There were small capillaries that had burst from the infection in his eyes. The man in the picture was cremated less than six hours after the picture was taken as he died, before they could even treat him. I told, her that, I told her of this and she made a note, but mostly told me that I was probably seeing things as this man was long dead. I told my professor, and he seemed more worried than I. He'd had a similar experience during the Ebola outbreak in 1976. He began to ask the man's name, but then stopped. We were sitting in a transport when he walked by. We both caught sight of him, and as the transport wheeled away, we could see the doctor board a separate one headed off-site. As part of our journey, we were headed to see for a ride to a neighboring, unaffected village before heading home. My professor contacted the WHO rep when we arrived on our ship. She sent us his picture, and my professor turned pale. He wasn't a tan man to begin with, as he was already in his 60s, but what color he had drained from his face when he saw the picture. It was the same seemingly dead man who'd impersonated the doctor back in 1976, he was sure of it. As best we could tell, he was already long gone. We had no way of knowing where exactly, except that the transport he went on went directly to the airport. So they're not far from civilization, I guess. We didn't know what to do, so we turned to analyzing the samples and the data we'd collected before our quarantine. Because I guess I just assumed they were traveling far distances, village to village. But... Oh, okay. That's even scarier. Yeah. Closer to civilization, that it's a, cl- it's a, it's a closer outbreak to a, a city. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. The samples had long since been discarded, but the video recordings of the samples under a microscope still needed to be analyzed. I went directly to the mystery doctor's sample. Dr. Akachi, as he was called. 
I put the recording of his sample up to analyze and started to research his name. I couldn't find anything aside from a few mad scientist types in various anime genres. Ha! <laughs> I did a search on just the surname, as that was all they had to go on, and found something interesting. His name roughly translates to the Hand of God. When I thought of that, it explained a lot about his demeanor. He'd frequently refer to himself as the one who does God's work. I'm not sure he was talking about healing anymore. Suddenly, my computer began to light up with alerts. The good doctor's sample was off the charts infected. I'd sped the recording up a great deal, and by the time it neared the end, he went from perfectly healthy individual at day 20 to living zombie at day 21. He had enough Ebola virus in his system that I thought at first someone had merely switched the samples without anyone noticing until I checked and double-checked the records. The sample dish hadn't moved once. According to the logs kept by the aides, who weren't always medically trained, his blood pH dropped from 7.4 at day 20 to less than 5 by day 21. Immediately I contacted my professor, who told me not to call anyone else. We reported it directly to the highest ranking person we could find at the CDC. That was our mistake. They told us that such information, if unfounded, could cause a global panic. They told us that it wasn't possible that his blood could be acting like this and he still be walking upright, but we saw it. They told us we weren't to contact anyone else on the matter. I returned home to find my apartment ransacked. My computer's gone. Everything I'd taken to the CDC was gone. I keep a hidden hard drive under my bed that stored basically everything as a backup, and even this had been fried. My email accounts had all been hacked and wiped, and I basically had to start over my master's thesis. That's the biggest dick punch of this song. Yeah. None of the world's over for that, like, they ruined his shit. It's all for naught. <laughs> I mean, I knew that already, but... Everything's fine. Everything is for naught. Existence is for naught. It's just a wink. It's a blink. It's in the, a blink in the... in the eye of a, the grand gesture. Oh my god. Anyway. <laughs> I've done so by taking a look at cases resembling hemorrhagic fever outside of Africa. I noticed a trend in a few developed countries, mostly in Asia and Russia. But before I got too far, I was shut down again when I thought I found a case in North America. It looked like a Canadian bush pilot had come down with something resembling Ebola after flying a man from the remote area in the Yukon into Yellowknife. Another bush pilot from Alaska had died in a similar manner, but he'd been in the field so no samples had been taken and the body had been unceremoniously burned to prevent the spread. This was as far as I got before I was attacked by two large men and robbed at gunpoint. Again, I lost everything. It's almost comical at this point. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty funny. I returned to my apartment to find the door kicked in and my newly purchased laptop gone. Yeah, now it's funny. <laughs> that evening, I was informed via a close friend that my professor, the one I'd been working with, had died of a heart attack during an attempted robbery. I couldn't even go to the funeral because he had no living relatives and his body was taken by the CDC owing to his close proximity to the virus, even though that wasn't what killed him. I know I should stop. 
Twice in three days, I lost basically everything of value that I owned. But the man the pilots had given a ride matched the description to a T, right down to the blood red eyes. The CDC and the WHO are afraid of a global panic because Ebola has no cure. It's the perfect humanity killer. If an outbreak hit the United States, it could take 70, sorry, 60 to 80% of the population within weeks, months at best. And even with all the healthcare we have, there's nothing we can do to stop it. They don't think it's possible for this disease to spread to North America. And I think it's already here. Oh, they're in North America. They went back from He Africa. came home. That's, that's the point. He came mm-hmm. back from Africa. Um, and I wish I knew the song by Toto more accurately so I could sing it terribly. But um, I don't. So, moving forward. You fucking is that? That's not Toto. Is that not? Please forgive me. I, I've been Take living under. From you, nothing, nothing, more can ever do. From now the hell am I singing? Africa. The hell am I singing? Sterilized before reading. Okay, so if I remember correctly, this story is six or so parts, but there is supplemental reading. Mm. He stopped doing updates at one point of his thesis research to give us two other documents and time stamped. These documents came out concurrently with the first part. So the updates came much later, the, the updates of the actual narrative. So part two might be something else completely different. Oh. But it's a part of the canon of the, of the narrative. So part two, sterilized before reading. A good friend of mine, whom I met through my university and its ties with the World Health Organization, passed away in spring 2013. I hadn't heard anything from him in the months prior to his passing, but I was told that he was killed in fighting between guerrilla groups and the sitting militia. He wasn't one to keep a diary that I knew, and this was the only file on a small jump drive that came in a book. It was sent from his camp in Africa months ago, and finally arrived yesterday. There's no name on it, but I can't imagine who else it could be from. Needless to say, I took safety precautions before opening. I'm a humanitarian worker the World Health Organization, I've been aiding in the supply of clean water to third world countries since I graduated in 2002. I work mostly for a small division of private contractors that supplies the local villages with a small hand-operated pump to filter badly polluted water. It's an incredibly simple device that is very hard to break, fairly cheap to make, and can withstand years and years of use before needing repairs. It worked well for us for a few years until the rebellion in 2012 and the outbreak. In June 2012, the Democratic Republic of Congo reported an Ebola outbreak in the northern province of Oriental. The casualties are listed as approximately 30 to 40, depending on where you look, but at that time I was working in the Central African Republic and was assigned to cross the border to assist. They needed clean water to treat the sick, and I can say that more than 40 people died. I'm an engineer by trade, so I didn't have much to offer them other than a working explanation of how to maintain and operate the small pumps, and I assisted in installing some larger ones that could be pedaled like a bicycle to pump water from long inactive wells. 
We were appalled by the living conditions at first, and any time we tried to improve them, we were met with heavily armed resistance. The rebellion had begun in the CAR, and the DRC had at first declined to choose a side until the dust began to settle. Within a few short weeks, however, it became apparent that the warlords of the area were siding with the rebellion and began to provide troops, ammunition, and weapons at an astonishing rate. One particular warlord stood out. He seemed to have an unending supply of resources and a lust for conflict. He carried a sword with him wherever he went, and on one more than one occasion, he visited our small camp. His name, as best as I could tell, was Portier de Guerre. We just preferred to call him Porter. Porter. How 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 would you say that? Um, Porter. Por um, Porter. 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 I don't know. As it was easier for us to announce, pronounce. As it, as this was easier for us to pronounce. Like I said, I'm not a doctor. So I only have a vague understanding of how to treat a fever, let alone Ebola, but when this warlord arrived, he asked that we give him the patients who showed antibodies, but were still capable of walking. This meant that they may or may not develop the infection, but could still be mobile. The leader of the village, also one of the people severely ill at the time, immediately refused. He disappeared the following day, and soon others started to go missing as well. The warlord then took control of the village by force, and soon acquired several neighboring villages that had mysteriously fallen prey to apparently the same strand of Ebola that hit the first. I began to notice that many of the hand pumps and even a few of the larger pumps that I brought with me had gone missing. I assumed that the DRC soldiers had been stealing them, but with no evidence, I'd have an impossible time proving anything, not to mention the fact that proving anything would have done nothing except put my own life in jeopardy. I merely locked the pumps up in a different location when possible and started to send them back to the CAR. Finally, things took a dramatic turn for the worst. I was getting ready to fall asleep in the back of my truck instead of my tent as we were planning on leaving the next morning due to safety concerns, and I saw a bright light outside. It was a binding flash that ruined my night vision for a good ten seconds and created a small heat wave that I felt even inside the truck. I looked out my window and saw that there was still a dim glow some 500 yards from my window. The light was slowly dying out, but it looked like people had been hit by lightning or something of that power. I quickly threw clothes on and went to run to help. I was suddenly grabbed by two guards and hurled to the ground. One of them kicked me sharply in the ribs, knocking the wind out of me and fractured two ribs as I later found out. This guy just gets beat. As, as I lay on the ground, I noticed another WHO worker. It was someone I hadn't worked with much in the past, but I knew him nonetheless. He looked worse off than I. He was burned in a bad way. His eyes were pinched shut as though something, had, something was wrong internally. They dragged us towards the light and tied us to a pair of folding metal chairs. At this point, I was expecting to be executed. My co-worker had passed out and was bleeding from his ears. I assume he was already dead or very close to it by that moment. Mr. Porter placed something on my right leg that was white hot. It seared through my jeans in an instant and charred a small section of flesh on my leg as I tried to scream in agony. The fractured ribs made this even more painful and near impossible. I nearly blacked out. Finally, after what was probably a second or three, he removed the metal and held it with his bare hand as he walked away. The glow I'd seen earlier was completely gone and the guards untied me from the chair. They escorted me back to my truck 
and hooked my trailer to the back. I was confused until they opened the doors and revealed all the hand pumps and well pumps that had gone missing. They seemed to be returning them. Some looked used, but we could always clean them or salvage them for parts. I bandaged my leg as best as I could, but I began to feel nauseous minutes later. Upon vomiting out of my truck window, I realized something was wrong. I needed to leave. <laughs> the other members of my group were already gone or missing, I wasn't sure. I hit the road that night and drove until I passed out behind the wheel. Mercifully, I merely drove into a shallow roadside ditch within a few inches of mud in it. I was able to work my truck out the next morning and continue on my way. I was stopped by guards at the border of the CAR. They raided my truck and forced me to hand over, and they put me on the ground and they peed on me over all the equipment. I was so ill at this point that I hardly cared. I could barely sit without holding on to something, but they put me back into my truck, sands all my gear, and sent me on my way. They literally, they literally took his shit. They literally took his shit and put him back on his car and made him leave. They took nearly $10,000 in pumps and another several thousand in computers. I had to tie myself to the seat to make it to my old base of operations, at which point I don't remember much other than the few doctors telling me that I was in bad shape and needed help that they couldn't give. The next thing I know, I wake up in a small, very sterile-looking clinic. I have no idea where I'm at, but I'm handcuffed to the bed. The nurse practically sprints from the room when I open my eyes, and in walk two huge soldiers carrying assault rifles. Then, an unfortunately familiar face walks in. It's Porter. I see that he's wearing a new uniform now, but it's definitely the same guy. He starts questioning me in the native tongue. Sango, I believe. I don't speak it, so none of the words make any sense. Then I begin to feel ill again. Porter smiled. Something I can't exactly describe as a comforting smile and abruptly leaves with his guards. The nurse finally returned to break things down for me. Apparently, the CIR soldiers thought that I'd smuggled uranium into the country. The nurse estimated that I received a dosage nearly 500 rungens, just under a lethal dose, but it was still too early to tell. I tried to explain to her that I had no contact with anything radioactive until I remembered the bright flash. The wheels in my head started to finally turn slightly. That could have been a critical... That could have been criticality. a criticality incident. But how could Porcher have touched it? Shouldn't he have been sick as well? He is sick. A few days later, I was still too sick to move, and finally the WHO had sent its own rep to help take care of me. She informed me that my equipment had been taken by the CAR and distributed among the poor in Guinea. This surprised me until she elaborated and said that they had taken most of the large ones for themselves. The outbreak of Ebola in the DRC had mostly run its course, and the few cases still ongoing were spread out by many hundreds of miles. It was February 2013 before I, had, I was able to leave the hospital only to have to return every night. Due to the ongoing rebellion, I was unable to actually leave the hospital as I was still under suspicion of possessing uranium. <laughs> and I kept seeing Porter. Finally, I snuck out. I was going to leave and try to get back to the States. I'd been in Africa for more than a year and I needed to get home. I didn't have anyone waiting for me, but for the first time, I just didn't feel safe. There was a small kitchen 
in the hospital that I had access to, and there was a small window about one foot tall and two feet wide that I'm pretty sure I could squeeze through. I took nothing and left a note to my WHO rep via email not to return the following week. I was so weak that I knew the only way to put distance between myself and this horrible place was with a vehicle. I knew my truck had to be somewhere, and so I tried to discreetly check buildings via open doors and windows during the day while I was allowed outside. I had narrowed it down to two buildings and was going to the most likely one first. Once there, I saw two people sitting inside. The first was someone I didn't recognize. The second was probably the last person I wanted to see. Poor sure. I was morbidly curious, so I stuck my head on the wall and listened as best as I could. Porter referred to the other person as doctor several times, and it was impossible to make out the entire conversation, but at first it seemed like Porter traded my pumps for uranium until I realized that he'd added something to the pumps. I took one with me and went to the other building where I found my truck. What happened next is something I can't rightly explain. I know I was still seriously sick, but I thought I saw something in the back of my truck. There he was. Porter. <laughs> I slammed on my brakes and suddenly we were outside. We were standing on a ridge looking down at the villages in the DRC that we'd been trying to help. Behind them stood an unending wall of troops, all marching towards the small huts. I could see a tattoo of Porter that I hadn't noticed before on, because... Uh, I could see of Porter. Yeah, you're right. I could see a tattoo on Porter that I hadn't noticed before because of his vest. There was a large red stallion on his back. Hmm. Then I was back in the truck alone and headed to safety. I still haven't been able to leave the country because I'm still accused of smuggling uranium. The pump that I'd taken with me contained a slightly modified mechanism. The water passed over a small dissolvable sheet of apparently freeze-dried material. The material quickly disintegrated and flowed into the filter, where I assume it remains in the charcoal. I didn't know that I needed to handle it with great care. I wasn't prepared for what it was, according to the doctors, I'm already showing antibodies, it's only a matter of time. The pumps were distributed to Guinea, so I know that's only a matter of time as well. The one question that bugs me that I can't solve, what did he want with the uranium? What did he do with it? The last person I asked said that no one with his name even existed in the DRC or the CIR. The doctors tell me that I need to go into quarantine now. I I don't know if I'll be back. I hope you find this before it's too late. I'm sorry if it's not much help. I received a message this morning from an anonymous source. It was a small post-it note stuck to my door that reads as follows. WHO knows you have it. More know as well. Careful who you tell. Have what? The information? I don't know. Or the, the infection. disease. The infection, maybe. So, part three is also unattached to the first narrator's story. So they're all separate. These three are separate. Then we get back to the narrator from the first 21-day quarantine. Part three is a supplemental they... narrative. I think they're providing us with context, because that last post might have been from the professor that died from a heart attack. This one might mm. be research or something dating back further. Okay. Part three is called They Hunger. 
1994, Kevin Carter took a photograph that would win him the Pulitzer Prize. It depicts a small girl, a toddler, in Sudan. She was struggling to reach a, few, a food distribution point and suffering from severe starvation. As she lay on the ground, a large vulture landed on the ground behind her. The only thing that I can say about the young girl is that whether or not she survived is unknown. Carter took his own life that same year. That was the photograph that got me interested in photography. I dedicated the next two decades of my life to capturing the images that defined life on Earth. I'm currently employed as a photojournalist for a small company that subs out the photos to larger magazines and online corporations. We go into the places where big names can't. My old boss started the company back in the 1960s, and it's been family-owned ever since. He started his career following Soviet tank crews in World War II and diving into the jungles of Korea and Vietnam. And he had always said that he'd either retire at 90 or die doing the job he loves. I thought I'd do the same thing until very recently. It started years ago. In 2001, we were given a contract with a larger company in need of photographs of the war-torn Democratic Republic of Congo during the Second Congo War. The region was rife with conflict, and pictures coming out of the region were all propaganda. Everyone knew that atrocities were being committed, but no one knew to what extent. We were provided with a driver and a guide for our group. The driver was a local man, and the guide was a Congolese woman of incredible beauty. I was a little worried at first. Women in the DRC are frequently treated as second-class citizens, and especially in war zones that aren't generally welcome among the DRC soldiers. Our guide wore the military garb of a DRC soldier but did not carry a weapon. She claimed to be neutral in the conflict despite her outfit and told, her, told us that her name was Alith. We flew into a small outpost just north of the DRC and headed south in a black jeep that had been seen far better days, possibly prior to, the, to 1950. After crossing a small wooden bridge, we were immediately stopped by a group of at least 10 or 12 haggard-looking guards with assault rifles triggered. They were a group of local militia. It's good. <laughs> and it appeared as though it had been some time since their last proper meal. After talking to our driver for a few minutes, they brutally dragged him from the vehicle, forced him to kneel in a ditch with his hands behind his head. As we all waited for the execution to take place, Alith abruptly broke the silence by by saying, I don't know what that is. That is... That deserves me cracking my neck real quick. Nala. Th this is like ancient text. It's like... K k k k Nala. It might be a... Mm, 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 Nala. Mm, now we're just Nala. being offensive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I understood very little of that. No kidding. I know the Dinka language just about well enough to ask for the bathroom. <laughs> At that exact moment, the guards fired a barrage of rounds into the ground directly next to the poor man's head, causing my entire crew to jump at the noise. He staggered back to the jeep with blood slow, slowly trickling down from his right ear. I couldn't tell if it was an injury from the noise or from a ricochet of debris, but as soon as he was able, he pushed the old jeep to its absolute limit and left the small camp in the distance. Alith explained to us that our driver was from an opposing village that supported the opposing political party. 
the rally for Congolese democracy. Apparently, he had denied having ties with them, but they planned on executing him nonetheless. Our guide had an unusual amount of authority for a female in a largely male-dominated country, and I hadn't seen anyone refuse a single order handed down by her to this point. We traveled to a large temporary village that was home to some 20,000 people. They had been relocated from their homes due to the fact that some of the men had joined the rebellion. The DRC soldiers then rounded them up, man, woman, and child, and marched them for miles from the places they called home and, f and, and forced them to live in the squalor beside a small, very dirty stream. The water was, simply put, toxic. No one could safely ingest it without becoming violently ill. And the land was of incredibly poor soil that could barely sustain even the hardiest of crops. Every few days, the DRC soldiers would come and raid the village. It wasn't pretty. They would cull the population, as they called it. it. usually happened first thing in the morning. There'd be some screaming, occasionally the sounds of a fight, and then the inevitable barrage of gunfire. The survivors were left to dispose of the dead, either in the stream, which was about four feet deep in places, and swift enough to carry a corpse away, or in the mass graves, which were filling up rapidly and not just from the culling. Food was more than scarce. Any villager who got his, his or her hands on food usually didn't last long. DRC soldiers would usually kill them to feed their own ranks or fighting would erupt between warring villages over who controlled the food. Either way, the guards became involved and ended things quickly and brutally. Over the course of a few days, I saw a small, sickly-looking dog wander into the village, and then I saw his bones picked clean less than 12 hours later, and I finally saw the bodies of some of the people who'd eaten him floating downstream. At this point, I realized that the satellite phone we'd been loaned had stopped transmitting. I'm not overly familiar with them, but it had essentially lost its signal due to a mechanical failure of some sorts. As we were more or less treated with some version of immunity by the DRC soldiers, my traveling companions were mostly unconcerned until a group of DRC soldiers raided the village in a spot right next to where we'd set up camp. More than one stray bullet tore through our tents, and one of the interns took some shrapnel to the arm. Our medic stitched him up, but at that point, we had to make a decision to move or to stay put. I spoke with Aleth, and she apologized for the soldiers. They're just doing as commanded. They, they can't obey his orders, she said, as a matter of fact. Even worse is that I have no power over those soldiers. They don't have to listen to me if they don't want to. I, I didn't really understand. Why did she have power over any soldiers? At this point, I began to wonder exactly who this woman was, and why she'd been hired to be our guide. We were slated to be in the camp for another month, and she managed to convince us to stay where we were, as moving our small camp to the outskirts of the village only puts us at greater risk. I was finally able to send a letter to the company that hired us to take pictures. They'd wanted documentation over the course of six weeks, and we were two weeks in, and we were shot at. I told the details of the journey and explained our current situation. They paid us half of our contract fee up front, so I sent them a few photos of the miserable living conditions that spread across the countryside. I asked them if they had any sections that specifically wanted us to visit, or any other special requests. I mentioned that our satellite phone was currently inoperable. 
And lastly, I asked them about our guide. All I had was her first name, Aleth, and nothing else to go on. It was a very offhand mention, offhanded mention at the bottom of a long letter. I assumed they'd get back to us within a week. A few nights later, I was developing some film. Yes, we did actually use film back in 2001, when I heard a shout coming from our main tent. It was one of the camera techs who had nearly as much experience as I. I ran to see what was happening and I saw an incredibly large DRC soldier, at least six and a half feet tall, holding him against a pole by his neck. In his other hand, he wielded a machete. The camera tech was a pretty guy. Jesus. <laughs> God. Tell me more. <laughs> the camera tech was very... He was a very pretty man. And he was pretty big. For, you know. But next to the DRC soldier, he looked insignificant to say the least. A crowd of 50 villagers had gathered around to watch. They looked thin and sickly. And almost as if they were entranced by the entire situation. I didn't know what to do, and the soldier had raised his machete, as if to behead my friend and co-worker. That's when I heard Alith speak up. Nakien, she said nonchalantly. Let me redo that so it sounds nonchalantly. Nakien. Yeah, Nakien. I re- I recognize this. It's it's something the locals say when they kill an animal during a hunt. As best as I could tell, it loosely translates to kill the animal. Nakien. I watched in horror as the large man's eyes became wide and he began to swing the machete in a huge arc toward my friend's neck. Then something odd happened. His massive arm was intercepted at the elbow by one of the villagers. Soon, several more jumped on the man's back. He was quickly overwhelmed by the sheer numbers of villagers as they proceeded to pile on the man while he fell to the ground. I couldn't see everything well enough to understand exactly what was going on, but after a few seconds, it became apparent. The starving villagers were eating this man alive. (laughs) Within a minute or so, he'd stopped struggling and had likely succumbed to blood loss. The villagers continued to feast until he was merely bones. Only two from my crew were there to witness the event, myself and the tech. We hurried back to our tent and stayed hidden the remainder of the night. I did not take pictures. As we ran back to our tents, another rather large DRC soldier stopped us with an assault rifle in hand. Mm. He had a sizable bite to his neck and was bleeding rather profusely at this point. He warned us to stay in our tent and staggered away. Nice guy. Mm -hmm. Stay here. I'm going to go get help. (laughs) (laughs) What a chunk out of my neck. But... You stay here. You guys stay here. I'll be fine. I'm going to walk away so that I don't hurt you. Gunfire could be heard intermittently across the village. <laughs> With a rhythm to it. Mm-hmm. However, oh, however, specifically it says not, not consistently. consistently. It came in sporadic and unusually short bursts. I had one small caliber handgun but was told to never brandish it. The soldiers saw anything that was holding a weapon as a threat and were trained to dispatch it immediately. I didn't stand a chance against a trained soldier, so I did the next best thing. I rigged several of our cameras up by the opening of our tent. I set the flashes to maximum intensity and tied a series of fishing lines, fishing line to the path that led to the opening. 
If anyone was going to try to sneak into our tent, they'd lose their night vision to the impending flash. It wasn't much, but it might be enough to give us the upper hand and survive the night, as it was equally unsafe to try to leave and travel after dark. So it's just him and one other guy. And Aleth. And Aleth. The fighting continued through the night, and the cameras by the tent were going off almost nonstop. I'd left film in, all of them, so they'd be taking pictures as well. No one slept. But when dawn finally arrived, none of us had been harmed either. The village seemed empty in the morning when we woke. A thin, acrid smoke hung in the air, mixing with the morning fog. At first, I only saw two other people outside, a large soldier with a sword at the side and a smallish man who wore glasses and the attire of a surgeon. He seemed to be speaking to the soldier. I was too far away to hear what they were saying and didn't exactly appear inviting, so I left them be until Aleth stopped me. I'm sorry you had to witness that last night, she said with the slightest hint of a smile. Thank you for uh, saving his our lives. It was all I could manage to say. I wish it were another way. I have no power over the soldiers, but I do have the villagers. They hunger. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> Steal all their food. With that, she walked towards the two men in the distance and joined them in conversation and ate them. <laughs> I gathered my crew, preparing to leave. Our lives were clearly in danger at this point. Our driver, who had blindly trusted our guide to this point, readily drove us out of the village and to safety. On the way, however, we saw the atrocities that had taken place during the previous night. Bones lay everywhere, stripped clean of flesh. They almost didn't smell. The carrion birds were left wanting that day. There was almost absolutely nothing left. We made it out of DRC, and I immediately questioned my boss, who, at the time, was in his late 70s, about our guide. He claimed that the company who hired us to do the work had hired the guide as well. I called them, and they immediately denied hiring anyone but the driver. We had no other leads, so I backed down. My boss took our photos, and I never got to see them beyond what was developed in Africa. Due to a contract dispute, most of the photographs never left our lab. This past May, my boss fell ill with pneumonia. He died in June and left the business to his son to run. He's been managing things for several years now anyways, and is nearly as good as his old man. I was actually included in the will and was left a small lockbox. It contained photographs taken throughout the ages from World War II all the way to the present, and I'm assuming they were taken mostly by my old boss. One of the last folders I came to read, 2001 DRC, I gingerly took it and looked, and the photographs weren't the best due to the fact that the flash was a bit off for the extreme darkness, but I could see them. Thousands of them milling around our tent, blank dead eyes staring at the flashes and wondering what was behind. None of them advanced on our tent, but occasionally I would see a corpse of one of the DRC soldiers as they tore into him. My boss developed all the film that we'd used in Africa, film that was never seen by eyes other than his. It was almost more than I could handle, and I'd been there in person. Finally, I saw that only one small folder remained in the box. It had been labeled at one point in time, 
but all I could read now was a small A scribbled on the outside. Inside were pictures of what could have been genocide for all I knew. Horrible events that I never heard of. Massacres, at least that's what I assumed they were, of tens of thousands of people, or what used to be people. They looked like husks of human beings. That's when I realized that some of the people, some of these people on the ground were still alive. I started to notice someone in the photos around the time of the Vietnam War. She was pretty and had uncharacteristically dark skin. Once the quality improved, I thought I could make the face out. I dropped the photos and staggered back. Once I built up the courage to look at the remaining few, I found that they were mostly from America during the Great Depression. The last one was old, very old. It showed my boss as a very young man in 1935, judging by the writing on the back. He was down on both knees, with the most pained expression I'd ever seen on anyone's face. Cradled in his arms was the corpse of a very young boy. I could see that the boy was dead. He had finally succumbed to either dehydration or starvation, or some combination of the two. They were both rail thin, and the boy couldn't have been more than two years old. It broke my heart. I knew my boss had lost a child during the Great Depression, but I'd always guessed it had been to illness. Lastly, in the background, I saw a woman. She stood a few feet away from behind him. It wasn't his wife. The woman stared directly into the camera and gave the saddest sort of smile. A leaf. That was kind of an interesting part. A little confused by some of the timeline. and I think it's just supplemental material. To kind sure. of give us this idea that these people might be dealing with the 21-day quarantine. At least Aleth and Porter might be involved Yeah, with what's happening. Because there's something more than meets the eye about both of them. If they're immortal. Okay. And I think that doctor might be involved, too. Okay. The one with the disease that... um. That looked fucked up, but he was perfectly fine. Yeah, so this is continuing the narrative that you originally started, and this is um, part two of the 21-day quarantine. It's here. I don't know why they brought it here, but they did. Dr. Ken Brantley, along with a missionary, became infected with the Ebola virus while treating patients in West Africa, despite the fact that they took the utmost precautions against the infection. They followed every protocol in their treatment. They never came into any sort of skin-on-skin contact with patients properly disinfected or discarded hazmat suits and were monitored daily. Suddenly, both began to show antibodies in their blood. No one expected the staff to become infected. The risk was always there, but such extreme measures were taken to prevent such an event that it was nearly a statistical impossibility. The only real way that the infection should have been possible was if the virus had somehow become airborne. That's the main weakness of Ebola. It needs bodily fluid to transmit. Sweat, tears, semen, blood, mucus are all common ways that Ebola spreads, but this time it seems different. People are getting sick when they shouldn't be. I meant to ask you before I continue the next part, how do you feel about this? It's not necessarily zombies, but it's not necessarily just Ebola. It's it's interesting, and it's written well enough that I don't really care with which direction it goes, but I did expect more I guess I'm, quarantine. I'm, I'm 
finding myself more confused because... Yeah, because most of it isn't really... I can't tell why our narrators are... They're basically relaying secondhand accounts. Correct. Of, of instances. Mm-hmm. We're not really seeing them experience any of the horror up front themselves. It's just by evidence that they're relaying to us. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess that's why I'm, I'm confused because it's... Some of it's, well, ambiguous because that's the nature of doing, you know, explaining secondhand stories. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I guess I'm a little just confused, but everything that they're saying is captivating. Sure. I, um, I didn't think it would be about political warring of tribes and clans in Africa, but you gotta remember that they also don't have democracy so yeah that's a cool element to this it is an interest it's an incredibly interesting element so i i didn't mind any of that the warring villages warlords and what the um the drc have going on involves what i dislike is the general vagueness of the infection or any actual continuing of the plot just because See, the they, DRC, feel like, they feel like doing little signature pieces instead of actually continuing the plot. The DRC is just, you know, Cerberus so, yeah, from Mass not, Effect. I was going to say soldiers, yeah. Unnecessary protectorate evil. I watched in horror as Dr. Brantley walked into the hospital on TV. I didn't know who or what that was in a hazmat suit that walked through the doors at of the Emory University Hospital in Atlanta, but it wasn't Dr. Brantley. No one with Ebola would be allowed that sort of freedom of movement. If his suit were to tear on the ground and somehow a small bit of containment leaked out, he could infect countless others before they had any idea what had happened. I did one of my previous internships at Emory and had several friends who still worked there. Some of them just quit with good reason. There's a room under an incredible amount of protection. Air in it is monitored versus air out. The lighting in the room is controlled based on what can kill off infection, and the staff are allowed into the room is so restricted that even if someone coded inside the crash cart would still have to have someone buzz them through the doors. That someone would be, from what I can tell, a heavily armed, highly trained officer of some sort. I spent last week working my way into the hospital. My courses to the university allowed me access to certain areas, and due to my area of study, I was granted access to that wing of the hospital despite the events that have already transpired. I was both terrified and elated at the same time. The pass that I had wouldn't get me access to the room, but it did allow me to analyze the data taken from other patients in Monrovia. I wasn't allowed to do anything with the actual samples that they all been disposed of in safe containers and were sent to a secure location off-site to be incinerated. The data, however, was mine for the taking. I poured over the infection and was startled to find that, unlike the 2012 outbreak in the DRC, the current strand seemed to take less time on average for symptoms to manifest. The infection could still take the entire three weeks to take hold, but many patients were now showing antibodies in less than a week from their supposed exposure to the virus. While this does mean that carriers have less time to expose others to Ebola, it also means that it's becoming more efficient. While in the lab at the hospital, I noticed a strange, smallish-looking man. He had very dark skin and looked eerily familiar. He was wearing a garb of a surgeon. 
He would come and go through the secure doors on a regular basis and never seem to interact with anyone. I could only ever see his eyes because of the protective gear and mask filter he wore, but his eyes shook me to the core. It had to be the same face, I was sure of it. He made eye contact with me once or twice and I could see his expression was the same fiery passion that I saw in Guinea. I tried to find out who he was, I expected to find no data whatsoever on the good doctor, but to my surprise, he was very well documented. His name is Dr. Wilson, his ID checks out, and he bears a startling resemblance to the man I knew as Dr. Akachi, but as best as I can tell, he is a normal doctor. He grew up outside of Orlando, Florida, and went to med school right here in Atlanta. Something still seemed odd about him, however. I began to snoop. Well, maybe stalk is a better word, but I was both curious and terrified at this point, and the last time I raised a big stink about something, it didn't end well. First, I began to focus on the outbreak. I was looking for cases of illness that looked similar to Ebola, but had been diagnosed as something entirely different. I started with people who had reported recent travel to Africa in any way, shape, or form. After finding more than a few cases of malaria, I decided to switch gears. I looked specifically into GI disorders. One of the hallmarks of Ebola is intestinal distress and bleeding. A few unlikely hits came up. A teenager with a rare bowel disorder that had been diagnosed since birth had recently passed away. A middle school teacher with a perforated bowel who had suffered through two horrible infections before succumbing to the third. And a sanitation worker for a waste disposal firm contracted by Emory University Hospital who'd recently died of complications related to Crohn's disease. This one caught my attention. I began to look into the file on the man. I had been flagged by the CDC in their watch for symptomatic individuals, but the man had no risk factors for Ebola, and I had a known pre-existing condition that led to frequent bowel bleeds. The thing that caught my eye was how minor it was prior to his death. He reportedly suffered from one to three attacks per year for the first 50 years of his life, and then suddenly has two major episodes in less than one week. He was also an alcoholic and had the liver of someone in their 80s doing himself no favors. He was not tested for Ebola as there was only a few facilities nationwide that can safely handle a sample for testing and he was not deemed sufficiently at risk for the virus. The middle school teacher had actually been tested as she had a relative who had recently returned from a vacation in Africa that included a jungle safari in the Congolese rainforest. Her results were negative. I went over the known data of the sanitation worker. I mentally began to refer to him as US patient 3 as he was possibly the third US Ebola victim and possibly the first US fatality. P3 was asymptomatic until August 3rd, 2014. He was dead less than three full days later on the morning I discovered his case. This is an incredibly quick turnaround, two days for infection and three days for death assuming his infection is related to Dr. Brantley and is usually indicative of a very direct contact with either blood or some other bodily fluid in great quantities. I could find no other link to the Ebola virus or Africa in any case. I had to assume that he'd somehow been infected by Dr. Brantley's return to the US. That's when I switched back to the doctor. Dr. Wilson stuck to a strict schedule. I discovered that he deviated from his schedule every Thursday. I decided that had to be it. That was when Wilson became Akachi. I also noticed that, although he was a very on-the-record person, 
his time clock would occasionally be off by an hour or so. This information was given to me by a very helpful nurse, whom I may or may not know on a personal level, and who shall remain very nameless. Oh my god. Yeah, there's there's points in this storytelling where it's just, okay, shave, shave your word count down a little bit. You're being very expositional for no word for no purpose at all whatsoever yeah. just adding words to sentences so that, that are so unnecessary and like that's the farthest I'll go in like a I writing may or may not be personal exactly. said nurse and she shall or he it, shall it's, yeah it's names. very um, it's very if I may internet bullshit and that's okay to an extent but like this is long and now I'm seeing that it's length is only padding yeah it's very painful to slog through something when you know that it could be summarized in half as many words. Anyway, it's not bad. No. It's just if, if we were to critique something, I'm glad that we're both picking up on the languid. Some of some of the stuff is redundant. The, I noticed some right in the big kick in the get-go. Yeah. There's so many times I feel like I'm saying the same sentence over and over again. I tailed him last Thursday. He didn't clock out when he left, and I was hoping that he'd stick to his normal routine and lead me to, I don't know. I have no idea what I expected. The villages of Guinea, medical tents set up with small cots containing the withering bodies of already doomed patients, suffering from the end stages of Ebola, maybe? I wasn't sure, but I can say for certain that whatever I was expecting, I was wrong. He drove into a very sketchy part of town that held mainly abandoned warehouses. I followed as discreetly as I possibly could, and at one point had to make interesting series of turns of very questionable legality to look like I was going a different direction while still managing to follow his jet black BMW. Finally, he pulled up next to a large warehouse that looked to be at least 50 years old and in a state of severe disrepair. It was nearly dark outside, and I followed on foot at the closest distance I think I could manage without being made. I almost lost him when he stepped down a series of stairs leading into a club beneath one of the warehouses. I realized something was off as the neon sign buzzed in the evening air. I paid the $10 cover, and sure enough, there was Dr. Wilson sitting in a far corner of the club and his very scantily clad mistress draping herself seductively across him. I planned on having a few beers to watch just to make sure, but before I'd finished the first, they'd both gone to the ladies' bathroom, not very discreetly, and returned in various stages of undress a few minutes later. I'd uncovered that the good doctor was having an affair, not planting the Ebola virus in the nation's water supply or some more sinister act. I returned home, $20 poor, and out of ideas. It was late, and I immediately decided to just go to bed. I was, scheduled, me. I was scheduled to meet with one of my new professors at the hospital in the morning. I calmly entered my apartment and sat my things down in their usual spots, but something seemed off. It was hard to describe at first, but it seemed like things weren't exactly where I left them. Great. I just had that, a feeling was that so first, hard to describe? Until I entered my bathroom and saw my toothbrush in the actual holder. That was a carryover from when my ex moved in with me before she decided the bodybuilders were hotter than book nerds and left me high and dry. Oh, poor, poor baby. I hadn't put my toothbrush anywhere, but lying on the counter for at least a year, suddenly it was in the holder. I grabbed a bat, because I'm too cheap to own a gun and apparently a steak knife from the kitchen didn't make any sense at the time, and began to search for an intruder. Last time, they just destroyed everything I owned, basically, so why were they so sneaky this time? completely baffled me. After a very 
thorough inspection that included randomly throwing back dark curtains and dropping to the floor to quickly look under furniture, I determined that I was indeed alone in my small apartment. I wasn't entirely calm, so as I finally collapsed into bed, I leaned the baseball bat against my nightstand just in case. I had just dozed off when I heard someone talking. Instantly I was awake, like a baby giraffe taking his first awkward steps into the world. I leaped from the bed, grabbed my bat, and fell quickly to the floor in what can only be described as a belly flop onto the carpet. I could clearly hear someone talking in my kitchen. I wasn't sure who or what they were talking about, but they were there. It sounded like English, but I could pick out a distinct British accent. With the grace and poise of James Bond, if he had indulged in a few too many martinis shaken not stirred, I used my iPhone camera to show me what was around the corner to my small kitchen without actually poking my head out. I could see a small man in a lab coat seated at the table staring directly at my outstretched hand. I quickly took a photo and pulled my phone back. The photo showed nothing except that there was now something lying oh on the table. God. As I tried to figure out what it was, I was started by the noise of the attic. It's a squirrel. I know it's a squirrel because he's been there for weeks, probably eating my insulation and chewing on wires while the complex refuses to do anything about him. As a time, however, it might have well just been Beals above himself. I immediately jumped around the corner and realized that I was now completely exposed. Only, there was indeed no one sitting at my table. There was a small slip of paper, written in jet black ink, where the words, Worry not from whence it comes, but rather from where it goes. I had nothing. Google turned up nothing. My common sense turned up nothing, and I had nowhere else to look, and so I slept, clutching my Louisville slugger, sitting in my recliner, with every light on. In the morning, I woke to the sound of hail beating on my windows. The paper was gone. I'd folded it into quarters and placed it in my pocket, but somehow it was still gone. I thought maybe I'd dream the entire episode until I remembered the toothbrush and the bat, the latter of which I was still holding. More eager than ever to leave my apartment, I quickly got ready to meet my new professor at the hospital. He drove up in a pale tan Dodge Ram that was probably older than me and looked like a mountain man through and through. Only when I heard him talk did I realize how incredibly intelligent he actually was. His knowledge of virology was incredible. He actually taught my former professor, the one who had passed away and had made his mark on the Ebola virus as well. His serum was currently being used to treat two Americans who had become infected. Well, it wasn't his specifically, but without his work, it would be several more months before the serum would have been even ready for experimental treatment, let alone two cases. He was the kindest, grandfather-like person I'd ever had the chance to meet and explained to me the steps I'd need to take graduate more clearly than anyone had in the past. Even though I knew pretty well where I was headed, it was nice to hear it from someone with authority. He had the graduate advisor for my university for 30 years before entering semi-retirement. As we were finishing our coffee and about to part ways, he looked me dead in the eye and said, It's good to know where you're going. Take care. He walked away and couldn't help but think of the message I'd been left. Back to the lab I went. The doctor in charge of the lab was a stern-looking man in his late fifties. He had the look on his face that said he'd done some things, seen some stuff in his years, and he made sure that policies in the lab were followed to a T regardless of the circumstances. Today, something happened. 
One of the hazard bins slated for incineration was left in the clean hallway between the patient's room and the lab. The doctor had a fit. He fired the tech responsible for the error on the spot. I believe he realized how hot-headed of a mistake this was when he found that no one else in the lab had the credentials and experience to take a bin of highly contaminated sheets, clothes, and other articles down for incineration. I did, so I volunteered. After a quick but thorough interrogation, he had me suited up and ready to go in in minutes. I'd done the same sort of work back in Africa, so it didn't seem like much to me. I was happy to earn brownie points with the doctor, and I needed a break anyways. Once down in the secure disposal pickup area, I waited for the truck. It was scheduled to arrive any minute, hence the irate reaction on the part of the doctor. After a brief wait, the red light finally lit up and the doors opened, revealing a small but secure-looking delivery truck. It had enough room for four or five bins in the rear, but there was only one. Mine. The driver stepped out, wearing a protective suit very similar to my own, and took the forms to sign. He asked where the regular tech was, and I, while trying not to bash the guy, informed him that he'd been let go. The driver grimaced and nodded as he took the paperwork to his truck. His passenger got out to take the bin. As he wheeled away, I turned around to leave when I realized that I was missing one signature. I ran to the driver before they left, and he apologized, signing it while sitting in the truck. As he did so, the passenger re-entered the vehicle. I got a look at him through the suit. My heart stopped. I had no pulse for a few seconds, I'm sure of it. The man showed me the same weary smile that was on his face in the medical tents in Guinea. His eyes were bloodshot and bright red. The driver handed me the forms, shut the door, and drove away before I could utter a word. Through my research, I knew which hazardous waste disposal firm was contracted by the hospital. I had to follow procedure where I'd be at risk for infection, so I quickly changed out of my suit and properly disposed of it. I showered off and told the doctor in charge that I was going to lunch. He nodded, looked at his watch, probably thought, 10.40 is a little early, but sure, your call. And I almost sprinted to my car. On the way to the waste disposal plant, I hit 95 on the freeway, attracting the attention of a state trooper who I'd barely had seen. I quickly got off the next exit around a bend, I had only time to see him turn on the interstate before the exit came up. I'm sure he got me, but he either didn't see me exit or decided that there was bigger fish to fry. I actually caught up to the truck at the railroad crossing. Apparently, mile-long freight trains are good for something. The truck was the first car, and I was about 30 cars behind it, but I could see it. Once the train passed the crossing, I weaved in and out of traffic as best as I could to keep pace with the truck. Finally, I saw them turn down the road to the disposal plant. Only it wasn't the main entrance, it was a dirt access road that was probably only used for maintenance. There was no way for me to follow directly without being seen. There was no gate, which was probably a breach of some sort of security protocol, seeing as how they were disposing of hazardous material on site. So I waited a few minutes and tried to be as discreet as possible and drove down the road, throwing up a massive cloud of dust in my wake. There was nowhere to turn around. The left side of the road abutted a pond of some sorts, and the right side was thickly overgrown with trees and other vegetation, so I came up with the I was lost and couldn't turn around excuse in case I was stopped. Not that they wouldn't just recognize that him yeah. and that he was following him. Fucking stupid. At the end of the road was a small garage. I parked next to it and looked around for the truck. There were tracks leading inside, but I couldn't tell whether or not they were from today. There was only one window that I could see, but it was about eight feet in the air, so I had to pull my car over and stand on the roof to see inside. The truck was inside and the rear doors were open. 
there was what looked like a freight elevator and nothing else. Suddenly there was a dull thud inside and the room began to fill with fog and droplets began to form on the window glass. Before it completely filled the room, I was already back in my car tearing down the dirt road. I didn't know what happened, but if there was any sort of explosion involving the incineration of Ebola-tainted refuse, I wanted to be anywhere but there. I briefly thought of alerting the hospital, but like I said... Alerting the proper authorities didn't go so well for me last time, so I returned to the hospital for the rest of my day. I didn't know what else to do. Back in the lab, I found that my new professor had taken over a small ring of students and was giving what appeared to be an impromptu lecture on the virus. He was reassuring some of the more skittish students that an outbreak in more developed countries, such as America, would be less devastating because we have better quarantine protocols, more sterile conditions, a more reliable blood supply, and chiefly, Ebola is spread via direct contact. We know that and can avoid it in treatment much better than someone with no medical knowledge treating a sick relative. I listened in, but was too preoccupied with what I'd just seen to really absorb any of the information. Afterwards, he pulled me aside and noted that I looked like my mind was somewhere else. I answered that I'd just found out one of my cousins had been in a car accident over the weekend. That wasn't entirely untrue. My cousin was involved in a fender bender the previous Sunday, causing her to fracture her foot in three places. He looked at me briefly and seemed about to leave it go until he spoke again. I know where you went, he said simply. What do you mean? I replied shakily. It doesn't last as long, in the form of mist, but it's just as effective. I hope for your sake that you were outside when it happened. Wouldn't want to start a panic now, would we? He answered as he turned and slowly walked away. He seemed almost apologetic about it. My heart stopped for the second time that day. I immediately took a decontamination shower and went home. As part of the program, our blood was periodically tested to ensure there were no contaminants escaping the secure confines. I quickly drew and tested my own blood using one of the kits. It came back negative. I'd taken a personal break from school. My classes don't start for another three weeks in the fall. I have myself quarantined at home with enough food and water to last another month or so. This happened last Friday. I have just over two weeks left. To be sure. I do believe this is the last part. Jesus, scared me. <laughs> it's not the first time someone's fallen asleep because of the good reading. That's just the fluff. It's it... just the fluff? <laughs> this, I, I do think this is the last part, so I apologize for how vapid this material is. I, no, it's alright. I mean, it's not uninteresting, it's just... Vapid. Yeah. Almost bleak. Yeah. And scientific, like reading a sure. book. Like, yeah. Which isn't what creepypasta or like, no sleeps are supposed to be. I can... It's okay, so here's... Totally... Let me preface by saying this is like a monthly winner or a well-reviewed Reddit no sleep story. I could understand why. Because it does have a tonal quality of, I work somewhere, how do you know? I experienced weird things. Haha, <laughs> photos, I gotta, I Africa. Gotta, no one understands these things. Let me write a story. I gotta interrupt you because you patted my stomach and you scared the shit out of me. I slapped your belly. And I woke <laughs> up like ready to like, ready Fucking to punch ready to, ready to go to town in case, God forbid, I needed to do that because I don't really want to go to town. 
Yeah, man. Um, Town sucks. Here's part five. <laughs> well, this is like, uh, this part is part three. three of the 21 day quarantine. And this is, I think the final part of the overall narrative. I could, I could check real quick. Mm-hmm. Last part. Three weeks is a long time. I nearly left my self-imposed quarantine on more than one occasion, only to self-guilt myself into staying home. If I was sick, they'd find me, dead or alive. But I wasn't going to spread it. Was that what they wanted? I don't really know anymore. And to be brutally honest, I was... Well, I almost scared myself out of it. I was done. Three weeks. My second quarantine since June. Always worrying that a cough might turn into so much more. And it never did. But, like a Netflix junkie going to watch just one more episode, I came crawling back. Oh, it's such a relevant metaphor. I've I've made a mistake. As soon as I was sure that the three full weeks had passed, I left my apartment. I went to the store, got some food, drove around for a bit, enjoyed a short walk, and had a serious come-to-Jesus with myself over what I was doing. I was going to kill myself. Not intentionally, mind you. Rescind rescind the high five. I was seriously afraid that if I continued along the pathway I was headed, I've seen what Ebola does to people. You know, he keeps referring to it as Ebola, but... But, like, I really don't think this is about fucking Ebola anymore. I like think it really, it really he should isn't. have figured that the, out. The worst, the worst part of this fucking story is that everything he knows is a lie. That should be enough of a fucking reason to kill yourself. That's more scary than... His shit has been taken, stolen, and fucked up so many times, he's lost whole documents and years of research down the fucking toilet of a terrible time where he was on eggshells the entire well you just read it calm so he was on eggshells the entire time over there treating outbreaks and having to go through these procedures that was probably hell and then fuck he he wants to he wants to kill himself because ebola is bad like Dude, you're, you're seeing people who have been alive and look the same after 80 years and you're worried about Ebola. Probably get your priorities in, in line. There's a lot more shit going on here than Ebola, bro. I've seen what Ebola does to people. I've seen what it can do to those who survive the virus. So I made the decision to change. Yeah, but you also saw a guy who was infected and had the biggest smile on his face. This guy is fine. We have no reason to believe he's not fine. I was going to go to the hospital, get my stuff, leave, and not return. The only work I'd been doing was strictly extracurricular and or preparation for my thesis. I could do that from home or from the university. I arrived at the hospital to host to a host of new faces. I recognized almost no one. Those who I did recognize looked at me with a face that I can only describe as fear. It was odd. I felt like everyone was watching my every move. I couldn't determine why until I checked with one of the nurses who'd helped me out so many weeks ago. She said that I looked like death. My heart stopped for a second. She said I looked famished, like my clothes were wearing me, and like I'd been starving myself for weeks. My heart began to beat again. 
I weighed myself, and sure enough, I'd lost nearly 20 pounds in three weeks. He even lost weight, man. The story isn't so bad. I was gone. It's only 20 pounds. Seriously. No, it, yeah. I guess in three Try weeks. Try losing 20 pounds. Yeah. Wish <laughs> me luck. <laughs> I was gone. I was gaunt. I guess I hadn't noticed my appearance because I either hadn't looked at myself closely in the mirror for three weeks I'd been holed up, or I changed slowly enough that I didn't catch it. I felt a tap on my shoulder and nearly hit the ceiling. <laughs> what is this, a cartoon? It was one of the doctors in charge of the lab. We missed you. Were you sick? He asked, looking somewhat skeptical. Can't really blame him. I looked like crap. Step over here for me. We're going to take your temperature. I was, at this point, more than sure that I wasn't running a fever, so I readily agreed. His next statement, however, surprised me. Okay, you're good. 98.7. Hey, stop by my office before you hit the lab. Need to catch you up a bit. The hospital has introduced the body scanners that can measure temperature via thermal imaging. It reduces the risk of a hospital worker coming in contact with someone sick just to take their temperature. I headed for the doctor's office and wondered what he wanted to catch me up on. I should have just gone home. They needed more volunteers in Africa. The situation had gotten exponentially worse during my self-imposed quarantine, and I needed anyone and everyone they could get. I already had experience in giving medical assistance overseas. So I was a candidate right off the bat, but no one could contact me. I answered zero emails, phone calls, or the door, except to say that I wasn't feeling well if someone knocked. Every fiber of my being said no. My mouth very nearly did too until some very small voice in the back of my head said, go. For what reason? Yeah, it was quiet at first, but it got louder and louder before I could resist. Go! I agreed to, to make the trip. Due to the number of professors involved in the outbreak, my, my fall classes were temporarily postponed, and credit was offered for participation in the relief effort. Fantastic. I left on August 31st for Liberia. Sounds great. With over 1,300 confirmed cases and over 600 deaths, Liberia, at that point, had been hit the hardest, although Guinea and Sierra Leone aren't too far behind. One of the scariest clusters, however, is still rather unknown. A doctor who'd treated patients in the first outbreak in Nigeria died in late August after traveling to another city and possibly exposing hundreds to the virus. Quarantine protocols aren't nearly as strict in Africa in some places, and they aren't always followed, even when the WHO takes a direct interest. If a man comes to the hospital wielding an AK-47 turret and telling you to release his sick daughter, it's hard to say no. The number of infected is already doubling roughly every month, and reports have been slowly slowly trickling in, confirming the worst-case scenario in Nigeria. You know what this reminds me of? If this was the perspective of an individual in who's living in the world of the game... Pandemic? Pandemic. Thank God, you know. That's what it reminds me of. Sure. Because sure. it seems like this this illness... There at times also reminded me of the movie um, Contagion. I think I've seen that. Matt Damon, when a gets a disease, and I think it was Korea. 
was in Asia. I've definitely heard of it. Comes back to America and kills like 30% of the population of the world. Yeah. Before they figure out a cure. Yeah. That's pretty, pandemic. Pretty crazy fucking movie. I was to be in much the same role I was last time, analyzing the virus, testing patients for possible infection, and confirming infection both before and after death to track the spread and source of the disease. As best as modern science can tell, this particular outbreak began at a funeral. Two different strands happened to converge at the same time, and started an epidemic that has claimed over 1,500 lives. Before the end of the first day, I was back in my routine. I had confirmed a handful of new cases and actually confirmed that a few lucky individuals had a different ailment, such as malaria and yellow fever. If that can be called luck. <laughs> cure those. I quietly performed my duties for a few weeks, as though in a trance. I was there because I knew I was needed. Finally, I began to feel more like my old self. I started to almost enjoy what I was doing, and my curiosity returned. I was perplexed that the entire plague had originated at one funeral, from two different strands nonetheless. This massive epidemic was brought on by the death of a young boy. The first strain seemed to be from eating contaminated bat meat. This wasn't uncommon in the area, eating bats, but the second strain was more ambiguous. It seemed to originate from a person. This was somewhat unusual, as people generally can't be carriers of Ebola without showing symptoms. Bats are able to carry the disease without becoming ill. The RNA of the second Ebola strand indicated that the carrier was a primate, and almost certainly a human rather than a gorilla or some other hominid. Intrigued, I began to dig further. Let me bring up Contagion again, because um, if this story was written after, then I think Contagion also originated with bats. If, oh. I'm, if I'm in, if I'm un, if I'm uncertain, a disease that didn't really affect them, but the droppings got into pig trowels, and uh, tons of pigs started eating that tainted meat. And Gwyneth Paltrow turns out to be one of the people eating meat at a restaurant. Wow! At one point in time, that didn't get killed by the fire, and was served in in such a way that she ate it. But you know, the virus spread much like Ebola in that movie. And that's not that's not about zombies or anything. That's just a you know an Ebola disease that kills people. Most of the people that attended that fateful funeral, more of a burial ceremony actually, have long since passed. But there were a few survivors who'd beaten the virus and lived to give tissue samples afterwards. These showed an unusual cellular structure, as if the person was still somehow a carrier long after their initial infection had passed. When I began to look deeper into the family history, I discovered that the family, unlike most in the area, could trace their ancestry back for centuries, millennia even. I was even thinking that maybe the survivors had some sort of gene that gave them resistance to the virus or enabled them to have a higher chance of survival. The adventurous part of me began to light up with the possibilities of developing a vaccine or even a cure for Ebola. I wonder who's going to be resistant to these Ebola powers. Ebola powers activate. I, I'm I'm certainly sure it won't be torture from unrelated story number two or, or a leaf from unrelated story number three. Please continue. I requested samples from three tents that had patients similar in profile to those who survived the initial infection at the funeral. I've made better choices. 
The next day, I was leaving my med tent when a small girl ran up to me yelling, Here he is! I have no idea who the girl was or how she knew there me. Here he is, my queen. We, we <laughs> love you, my, my queen. Do not jump, my queen. We love you. Do She's not, gonna jump, do brothers. Not, do not kill yourself, my queen. I will jump first. But the next thing I knew, three large men, one holding an antiquated rifle, not mm, triggered, not triggered, calmly asked me to accompany them. <laughs> one of their family members was ill. This sort of thing wasn't uncommon. They generally didn't have rifles, but more often than not, one of the team would go out to a village and find an entire new area of infection, often adding hundreds of cases to the list. I politely asked to grab my gear first, but was herded into the back of an old jeep before I had a chance to argue. We have protocols in place for this. Many of the people living here don't completely comprehend how the virus spreads. Sometimes they're terrified and just grab a doctor or technician before they completely understand the gravity of the situation. I try to act as calm as possible. I'm not a doctor, just an aid worker. I can't touch patients, nor would I want to. I expected to find a hut with one or two gravely ill people on death's doorstep, and a few other who had obviously contracted the viruses as well. I would have been lucky. The jeep rolled up to a group of huts, and the man pointed the rifle at me. I calmly stepped from the jeep, and the moment my foot hit the ground, the jeep started to pull away. One of them shouted, They are yours now. May God save you. We'd been traveling for at least half an hour through the winding, hilly terrain. I didn't have my phone on me. I had no watch, and I only had my work ID badge. We weren't allowed to keep much in our pockets when coming from or going to the med tents, so I tended to unload them in my personal tent. I regretted that habit. I knew I was probably 20 miles from our base and that my only real way back was to hope that one of the villagers could help me. I waited a minute or two to see if anyone would come out. Usually in far out places such as this a vehicle meant some sort of delivery or at least a traveler passing through. People generally flocked out to meet the person or to get a glimpse of something they'd never seen before. Nothing. I called out to the huts, first in English, then in a bit of the native common tongue to the area. I don't know much but hello, greetings, and where's the bathroom? Seemed like good things to learn, so I made them a priority before I left the U.S. Still no one emerged from the huts. I walked closer to one of the mud and straw dwellings. It looks fairly well constructed, but it seemed to be in a state of disrepair. The rain could cause some of the mud to run and would require attention after a strong storm. This hut looked as though it hadn't been tended to in some time. I peered in the open window and quickly drew myself back. Three corpses lay on the ground, just inside the main opening to the hut. They had been dead for at least a week or so. Judging by the state of decomposition, I wasn't about to get in closer for a better look. Searching a dozen or more huts, I found more of the same several corpses, some slightly fresher than others, all seemingly ravaged by the Ebola virus. It was then I realized how intensely quiet everything had become. The jeep was so far in the distance that I couldn't even make out its dust trail anymore, and the sound had long since died off. I briefly debated trying to walk back, but that would likely take several hours, and I wasn't about to spend an evening on a dirt road in Liberia. I may as well have been stranded on a desert island. 
The only thing I could think about was the fact that I doubted anyone saw me leave. I was on the back side of the camp where the jeep arrived, and it's on the opposite end of a small hill. If anyone had been by the river, they may have seen, seen something, but I didn't recall seeing anyone there as we sped off. While I went through all the worst-case scenarios in my head, I was meandering back to where I'd been dropped off. As I was nearly there, I thought I heard something. Maybe it was my mind playing tricks on me, maybe it was the wind, maybe it was something else entirely, but it sounded like very light footsteps. It's a Morlock. Mm, I hope so. If there was someone still alive here, they might be able to get help, help me get back. Mostly just because anything's better than a black person in the middle of the night. You can't, yeah, you can't in see. In Africa. You can't see. Light steps, too. Like an elf. If there was someone still alive, they might be able to help me get back. I immediately turned and tried to follow the sound of its source. Hell no. I followed the noise to the center of the village, but initially found no one. Despondent, I had nearly resigned myself to walking home when I saw someone. It was just a glimpse, but I saw a person slink behind one of the huts as soon as I looked in their direction. It's a fucking Morlock, dude. I quickly ran towards them with complete disregard for the fact that any living individual remaining in the village was likely infected with the Ebola virus. I stepped into a small clearing where four huts shared a small yard, and realized that whoever I was chasing had successfully lost me. I stood in the center of the four huts for a moment, and turned to walk back towards where I had started. As I did, a figure appeared in one of the doors as I walked past. It was tall, towered over me by half a foot. I quickly stepped back, but whoever it was stepped out towards me. There were boils and lesions on his face. He had at least two or three visible gunshot wounds to his chest, and his eyes were blood red. I began to run almost at once. I stepped past a handful of individuals who had also decided to suddenly come to their doors. Some were missing limbs, some had visible injuries, some merely looked bloated from decomposition, but they all had those blood-red eyes. Finally, fucking zombies. Finally. This is 40 pages. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I ran... The story isn't that bad. I feel like we're being over overly critical, but, like, it has taken us 40 pages to, to, get, get, to, the, to, now, to get to zombies. Now the payoff. I, uh, so they all have these blood-red eyes. I ran until I came to the edge of the village. Dusk had fallen, and I, I had no choice but to hit the road. Jack, and don't you come back no more, no more, no more, no more. <laughs> I knew it would take hours, and that I was less than safe walking a dirt road in Liberia by myself, but I had little choice. I began to run down the road. I knew running 20 miles just wasn't going to happen, but I had to distance myself from whatever was back there. So let me get this straight. A white, presumably white, and already noted to be relatively chubby, bookwormy, nerdy white American is running through the night in Africa from Africans. It's like swimming in water from sharks. Yeah, if I were him, I would just find somewhere to hide. I don't know about that either. I'm just saying that, like, running away from an African is probably... Oh, certainly impossible for this guy. Something was following me. Mm -hmm. I could see in the darkness that something was about 50 yards or so behind me. 
It would gain ground every now and then, and I would run a little harder. Suddenly, I had the wind knocked out of me as something rammed into my chest. As I focused on my pursuer, I failed to notice that something had been following beside me as well. I rolled once and kicked my feet out as the snarling mass of fur that had been trying to bite through my jacket. I rolled to his side and kicked as hard as I could. Never did I think it would actually work, but I connected directly with the head of the animal, which I saw to be a rather large hyena. I must have either seriously hurt or scared it because it tore off running shoes toward whatever had been chasing me in the first place as I scrambled to my feet. Seconds later, I heard a, a shrill howl cut eerily short. I hadn't been running for more than 10 or 15 minutes, but I was exhausted, drenched in sweat and ready to give up. I could hear the ragged noises of something chasing me still. Not the breath. I never heard that over my own, but the uneven steps that seemed to be too rapid to be normal running. The scraping sounds when its feet slid on the dirt, and the soft sort of squish sound it made with every step. I knew I had exhausted the majority of my adrenaline, and that was all that was going to keep me going. As I rounded the sharp bend in the road, I stumbled on what I thought was a route, only to be dragged into the complete darkness on the side of the road. A young boy of maybe eight years old held his hand over his mouth, making the shh gesture. This was a moot point I could hardly breathe after running for so long and after hitting the dirt so hard when I fell. The thing ran past. It seemed confused and it slowed for a few seconds, or at least the squishing noise slowed. But then it continued on with renewed vigor after a moment. My god, it's like the freaking monster from Amnesia that you run away from. Absolutely. The boy was maybe eight years old and completely alone. I tried to ask him a question, but after a moment it became apparent that the language barrier was going to be impossible to overcome. He motioned for me to follow him. He didn't appear to be infected, though no one can ever tell. He had already touched my leg when he pulled me to safety. I'd burned the jeans when I got back, if I got back. We walked for some time in silence through intensely thick cover. Occasionally, I'd hear something around us and we'd pause. My guide would remain deathly motionless, and after a short period of time, we'd begin to move again. The hair on the back of my neck had been standing on end for so long that it was beginning to give me a headache. Hours passed and finally the dense brush began to clear up a bit. We emerged at the top of a large hill in the pre-dawn mist. I figured we had to be close to my home base guessing by the general direction that we traveled, but I couldn't be certain. He pointed into a valley that was covered in a pale fog. I couldn't see anything except that the sun was about to rise from behind the hill on which we stood. After a moment, I started to make out shapes in the distance. They looked like mounds. I began to realize that I was looking at more huts. This was another village, only it was larger, much larger than the previous one. It looked as though there might have been 100,000 people living in this absolutely massive valley. This would be an immense village by any standards, but even more so that the horses... Sorry, the houses were all constructed of mud and straw. Imagine horses out of mud and straw. Mm -hmm. Then it dawned on me. I couldn't see a single person. Usually these villages were bustling with people. Even if they were sick, the villagers couldn't afford to just stay in bed. 
They needed to tend to the crops, catch fish, bring home dinner. That's how Ebola spreads so readily in these types of places. I looked towards the boy. He could tell I knew what was I he he could tell that I knew what I was seeing. There were likely one hundred thousand dead here. The death toll from the current Ebola outbreak grossly underreported. That was a known fact, but this was apocalyptic. The boy pointed the east and said something that made me believe that was where we were heading, and he merely stood there. I absent-mindedly asked if he was coming with me. Despite the fact that he didn't speak any English to my knowledge, he shook his head no and began to head into the village. He bounced down the steep hillside and towards the village. Once he reached the valley floor, I watched him run, run toward the huts. One by one, they emerged from the doorways, some staggering, some lunging. The boy was fast. I don't know what he was doing or why he did it, but he was running through the main corridor of the village, and they were coming out of their huts. The diseased, possibly dead victims of a horrific virus that was spreading uncontrolled. Finally, he faltered. One of the faster ones grabbed his arm and he violently ripped him to the ground. He was pulled in two several separate directions. What? Two several separate directions? I think it just meant two. He was pulled in, in, in two separate directions until I could see him no more. I was dumbfounded. Then I saw them start moving towards the hill and up it. That was pretty stupid. Of the kid? Yeah. Yeah. That's you one, go that way. That's, I go home. That's one way to get rid of a character. I go home. No. Imagine, I showed you the way. Imagine that kid was actually a little girl, and it was the little girl from Mulan that thought the Huns had destroyed that village. It just leaves you dog. Where Yao's father, no, Yao, whatever the, the guy's name is, make a man out of you. His dad died. Anyway, th th that doll, right? Uh, obviously owned by some little kid. What if that little kid was that, that person running up the village and the yeah, man. Huns ripped it apart? Why did you connect these I don't bridges? Know, I make such <laughs> weird connections. Like, put a picture to... That was clearly a Chinese villager, and this takes place in I know. Africa. I don't see race, dude. Ron. I don't see culture. <laughs> I see the incredible void in which we all end up floating endlessly and yeah. floating or not floating yeah man just not being <laughs> we'll all not be together <laughs> do you want me to finish this no yeah go ahead <laughs> <laughs> not yeah you yeah, let me get these two pages real quick sudden crash a sudden crash behind me shook me from my thoughts and I was running again in a second there was something charging through the thick undergrowth right at me it wasn't moving like an animal. It seemed to be just charging wildly. I ducked into the thick brush, but quickly found myself hopelessly mired in a tangle of vines and almost found it easier to climb over the vegetation. Once I was a few feet off the ground, I was able to actually move with relative ease. Suddenly my legs gave out and I was falling, much further than I should have been falling, considering I was only a few feet off the ground. The world spun and faded to black. I woke up on the ground by a stream. I was at our base. I staggered into camp and was immediately gathered up by two of my colleagues. They didn't say much except to ask what the hell happened and where I had been. I changed and assured everyone that I was indeed still alive before heading to the tent to sleep. I was exhausted, but I hardly slept at all. And when I did, it was nightmarish. I had visions of the dead coming to life and pursuing me. I told my boss what I'd seen and he informed me that I had imagined it. 
the neighboring village has all sent representatives to say that they were free of infection just a few days ago. What? I told him I thought he should check again. I was offered the chance to go home as I'd been out of physical contact with confirmed patients for longer than the minimum 21 days. I accepted. I've made better decisions. During the flight back last night, I heard a myriad of people coughing, sneezing, and occasionally vomiting in air sickness bags. Unsettling doesn't accurately describe the scenario. I stayed in my seat and thanked my lucky stars that no one else sat in my row. The plane was relatively empty. It was an incredibly long flight with three layovers, but finally we landed in Atlanta. I stood to leave and realized that I was the only person getting off. I didn't think that incredibly unusual until I realized how quiet the plane had become. The entire flight over, I heard people coughing and hacking, but now everyone was silent. I stared back the rows, and that's when I saw it. Their eyes. All of them were blood red. What the fuck? I immediately disembarked the plane and headed for home. I did a quick look of where the flight was going, and as best as I could tell, it was bound for New York, departing mere minutes after I disembarked. As far as I can tell, it arrived and never left for its next destination, which was again Liberia. The toll is now over 6,400, with an estimated 2,500 deaths. Liberia is still the hardest hit. There are currently four confirmed U.S. citizens who have contracted Ebola. That number, like the others, is greatly underreported. They won't show the true number until it's far too late. Today, I received an envelope in the mail. Wow. It contained two pictures taken with a Polaroid camera, the first of which showed my old home base in Liberia. It was deserted. Only one figure stood in the center of the picture. It was the small boy who'd helped me on the road! He now looked vastly different and slightly slumped to one side. It was hard to tell, but his eyes looked completely red. The back was scrawled on in pen and looked very hastily written. What have you done to us? What have you brought to us? The second picture was of a small wooden box laid on the ground with a small boy in it. He had ferns and paintings around his head I immediately recognized. This is a burial ceremony. In the picture there was a woman, presumably the boy's mother, kissing him on the forehead. This is a custom at many African burial ceremonies. As Ebola is most transmissible immediately after death, this part of the burial is the easiest way Ebola has spread unchecked for so long. I looked on the back, and the date read December 2013, written in English. There were initials written on the bottom right-hand corner as well. Was I looking at patient zero? Then it hit me. In the background, of the picture, I saw several people standing around. Cameras are rare in undeveloped regions, and most don't know how to react to the flash or to even hang their photographs taken. Standing beside a tall, somewhat elderly man was a young boy, maybe eight years old, and the very same one who had helped me on that road. Only this picture showed him differently than I remember. His eyes were blood red, just like in the picture from my old, now abandoned medical camp. It was then that I realized that the initials were the same as those of my old professor. The man who has since passed away was the very same person who took this picture nearly a year ago. Well, wait a minute. So basically... <sighs> so basically, it's a huge convoluted mess with no actual payoff. Everyone's infected. The world's going to shit. 
Everyone is infected. Zero explanation why they're writing this on Reddit. No sleep. How is he not infected? He's gotta be infected. The narrator. Yeah. I'd say so at this point. Definitely. We should have skipped the the two independent portions for to read after this three-parter. It was the way they were released. I just I just went in order. Sure. I totally understand. The rest of the viewers would have gone in order. I'm j- what you know what really plagues me and I use that pun intended is <laughs> the idea that people found this mesmerizingly good. This is probably the first time I've read a story and I've just been like all right. You know, and it's and it wasn't short, which is what hurts the most. <laughs> is that like I c- we could have read anything better than that tonight, <laughs> and that just didn't seem. Oh, that was the first bad story I've read. Worth it. Maybe other people will enjoy uh, this, I mean, and maybe I don't think it was necessarily terrible, but I just. Maybe to... we're missing it. I arguably I'm not even really high, but like maybe we're missing some kind of horrifying point. But it really like that you can't blame us because it's it's a convoluted. Oh yeah, it's a convoluted written written style. A lot and, of and redund- redundant statements. So like, excuse me, princess, if I don't give a shit. That the professor was the one who took the picture of the boy a year ago when a bunch of other stuff had been surfacing from the fucking 70s. Like, what's what was the point of the supplemental material that took place in the 90s and early 2000s if... This is taking place if, in 2000. If the person he thinks is subject zero for Liberia in that village was the boy that saved him but didn't necessarily die until that I I don't I don't care and frankly talking about it I also am just... really confused why he had been kidnapped by random people and then why he's being blamed No that was the that was the boy The boy was patient 0 for that village and the what what have you brought to us what did you do to us um, well, no, the individuals who'd kidnapped him brought him oh, to the Oh, the professor. The professor gave it to him. The professor gave it to the boy, and the boy died that way. Okay, that makes more sense. So the professor was infected from prior on in the story, from whatever happened in chapter one, or he's connected to the shit that was going on. I, I think he wrote the document I read. The, the second story. So that professor is linked back to trying to research something else that had been going on over there. And it's, and it's all very, I guess it's, I guess it's circular in its, yeah. in its plot in its motion in the fact that this was something that he got and he spread to people in Africa and that it wasn't Africa origin Subject zero. Yeah, but, it definitely ain't but regular that it, Ebola. But that it might have been, and I'm just speculating, it might have been the CDC that is responsible for the spreading of this disease. Yeah. I, I just think that what what was most what was most problematic with this story, which I, I haven't seen in a while, is that the focus is on the completely wrong thing and the and the paragraphs aren't organized. Ever 
in a sense, to focus on what needs to be focused on. He just kind of admonishes everything around him in each story and never really reacts to any of it and and never really lets the viewer linger or focus oh, on yeah. the the mortal conundrum of the shit he's going through it's always very and then i saw that but now i'm home and then i saw this That's but i'm back exactly at camp it. and then i saw this but i'm back at class but and then i saw and I, then i this, you know this, even this, when this. i was on a plane home everyone was infected but, but i'm, I'm home <laughs> You know, I went to the woods, saw the car and stuff exploded in a garage, but I came back to class. My professor was like, I know what you saw, but he let me go. I saw a kid. You know, everything is like, something happened, but it's inconsequential and the story continues. I ran away from a bunch of There's a virus virus here. And it's like, let's continue, let's continue. I'm just glad that you enjoy, like, making fun of shit as much as I do. I passed out. It's somehow. not a waste of time because I enjoyed I w- reading I woke, it with I you. I woke up back at our base. It's not a waste of time because I enjoyed reading it with you, and when we got to you know hang out and read it oh, together, yeah. it, it it's it's funnier because it wasn't great, and it's the first time in a long time that I've read something and I've been like, okay, but like everyone has this kind of episode. I'm not gonna Good. lie. Um, I can tell you for a fact, Frowns' episode that's like this is 69. It's it's just, it's a mess of a fucking episode. Django's first episode, uh, we read a random Reddit no-sleep story before we get into search and rescue stories, and it just kind of sucks. And, and Django, being probably, other than you, the most serious reader on this show, was very funny to, to read something shitty with him to start off his tenure on this <laughs> podcast. I would say Gnarly Charlie and I in episode 20 read a lot of cringe-worthy creepypastas. And then the only other people I could think about that ju- that I just read kind of shitty stories with is uh, Terry the Tickler or Bunch of Baby Ducks, and that's just because of the episodes we kind of read with them. But but they're funny people, so they, they roll with shit, and we just laugh at shit. This is the first time you and I seriously divulge material that we thought would be totally interesting like i've never heard of um i, I, I never in, in no i've heard of ebola <laughs> before the the problem the the real problem the true problem is you approach the material as a cdc worker for what first looked like Ebola, then quickly evolved into not Ebola, but was referred to as Ebola for the rest of the fucking story, yeah. and never went full zombie. And even when it looked like it did, it was short-lived, because the writing style was, but this happened. This happened, but But this, I'm back now. But I'm back now. That's the new, that's a new trope now. A new trope is like, something bad happened, but it's fine now. But I'm fine. Oh my god. That's um, sinful to write like that. It, it it honestly is. And, you know, coming off of last week's episode, which is very much a joke um, about dude bros hanging out that, like, love each other too much and, you know, defeat a mythical creepypasta monster, um, this episode is, like, polar fucking opposites because this was a story that was trying to be serious and is laughable yeah and that's a laughable last week was a laughable story that turns out being relatively emotional and serious so 
I mean, they're both laughable at the end of the day. But I'm glad that we approached the material with uh, some levity. Um, because topics like diseases in Africa can get sour very quickly Yeah, with with the wrong people. And when the story is written so dryly like this and so informative and just kind of lost, meandering. Yeah. Parts 2 and 3, I were like, doesn't off pretty much like what's going on and and here's the problem my favorite part was part two i was gonna say i actually liked the war photographer story and i kind of liked the like hidden notes in a research diary you know i kind of like that what i didn't like was the overarching narrator who just rolled with shit and found himself in situations he did not have to be there for. He was like, I found myself saying yes, and I, I, but I was back in Africa. You know? Like, just, ugh. What the, what the shit? Like, you quarantined yourself, and the minute you get out, you go back to Africa? Are you fucked? Are you fucked? I wanted to go home. But I knew I wasn't gonna be allowed and when I got home, there was a guy there in my kitchen with a piece of paper. But when I got home, my stuff was fucked up. So I just went and got more stuff and started my research over from scratch. My 10 years master thesis in graduate school. But when that stuff got hacked, you know, I just did it a third time. I just went back and I got the Best Buy guys and I are real are real tight now. Uh, it's Derek over at Best Buy over on Easton. Uh, yeah, he's a, he's a great guy. Just tell him that uh, Jared sent you. Jared sent Jared from Africa sent <laughs> sent you, and he'll give you a real good deal on all of that shit that the government fucked up for me. What a mess. <laughs> Maybe we should have read plot holes, because <laughs> this had plot holes. Did it have plot holes, or <laughs> yeah. was it just... No, the... Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I think it, it... It was bad, but it also had plot holes. Oh, it was peanut like... butter, but it also had bananas. Oh, Fucking mighty, help us. <laughs> the story was bananas. <laughs> anyway. God, never read this. Um, I mean, I, I'm not going to apologize because it was a story. I and had we fun. Read it and we read it well. I had um, fun. I enjoyed parts of it, too. I'm going to apologize for the listeners because they probably didn't follow that any more than we did. Maybe it'll enlighten me. Come on, me. though. Maybe listening to this three more times onto its publishing, it'll what, enlighten me. What the something. hell is it supposed to mean an entire plane full of people all of a sudden you land the damn thing and all of a sudden they get everyone's... quiet and everyone is sitting there with bloodshot eyes no longer coughing, sneezing, or vomiting. It, wouldn't they be... And then you just go home. Wouldn't they be trying to rip out of their seatbelts and... Trying to eat you something. What is he... What is he just like... See everybody... This guy... Sees everybody... This guy Red Walking Dead... gets up and walks away. This guy Red Walking Dead maybe even watched the first season that ends in the CDC. This guy read the, uh, the book for World War Z, which is a fantastic fucking novel about what the world would actually be like... If a zombie outbreak took place, the movie couldn't be any further from the novel. But this guy absorbed all of this material and then thought he'd spin it in a realistic light and throw it into... Well, I read an... 
while I read that article about that African guy coming up from his grave because people said he was diseased, so let me write a 40-page fucking story about that. Because, yeah, we were talking earlier, and evidently, you know, there is mythological voodoo bullshit going on that has been going on in Africa for hundreds of years. Yeah. And zombies are very much a terminal, a, t- a term, a terminology that Africans are akin to. They, they do believe in burying people alive and letting them, you know, come back up from the grave to have a new life oh kind my. of thing. Oh my. That's an actual thing. Look it up. African zombies. So, um, with all that shit being said, um, how do you feel? I'm, I did really enjoy some parts of it. Yeah. I'm pretty content. Um, yeah. You know, too, I, I, I just think it was funny, just because... Yeah. Whenever yeah. things don't really measure up to anything, it just kind of becomes a joke. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I'm glad you had fun. This was uh, episode 86, and uh, yeah, we we read uh, 21 day, 21 days quarantine. 21 20, days. 21, 21 hours. I like it. 21 days of trying to find a reason to live. 21 paragraphs of bullshit. 21 Ebola's for your. Outbreak. 28 small 8-year-old African children running around villages. 21 plot holes in three different overarching narratives that don't touch each other. 28. 21. 28. 21. Gotta keep it rolling. I need to cut the fuck up. We need to keep going with the 21 21 days of having trouble going to the bathroom because everyone has bloodshot eyes. 21... Passengers on the plane with bloodshot eyes that really just hated their red-eye plane from Liberia, and that was the only reason they were groggy in, in the morning getting up off of the plane. 21 days of uh, staying in quarantine and then ending up back home, magically teleporting back to America, and then <laughs> coming back to... 21 war photographs found uh, uh, with with pictures of a leaf from 1935 that will never come up ever again. <laughs> 21 African countries banding together to fight off the Ebola. Zombie hordes. Zombie hordes. T- 21 Porter de Goyers <laughs> because there were multiple set points that yeah, sat in cars four. and made people black out. And, uh... There seem to be multiple of that... In, each in... with red stallion tattoos okay. that are inconsequential. <laughs> <laughs> this story was a fucking mess. 21 plot holes in this. That's what I said! <laughs> <laughs> 21 repeated useless consistent facts. Um, yeah. That's, that's how we felt about this story. I hope everyone else uh, enjoyed it. So that's, that's it. Alright kids, go find purpose in life. Good luck.